0: restaurant unstoppable episode 998
1: with gavin casen i mean the message really is to stay curious stay curious and and find a mentor find somebody who wants to help see you into what is next for you and give them everything you have and require require the the same from them to give it back to you are you ready for it? it factors success stories failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge. Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. This
0: episode is brought to you by Mies, the culinary operating system for food professionals. Founded by Josh Sharkey, a chef and restaurant owner for the past 20 years, Mees organizes, shares, preps, and scales your recipes like never before. Before plus you can get laser accurate food cost and nutrition analysis faster than you could even imagine. If you're a chef mixologist, consultant operator, or generally, if you manage a recipe intended for professional kitchens, me's is built for you. Get started by visiting getme's.com slash unstoppable. That's G E T M E E Z dot com forward slash. Unstoppable. And as a listener of Restaurant Unstoppable podcast, you can get two free months of invoice processing by signing up today. With invoice processing, you can link all of your purchases to ingredients in your recipes, and the most current costs will be automatically reflected in every recipe. Revolutionize the way work is done in your kitchen with me's. This episode is brought to you by one huddle, a coaching and development platform using quick burst mobile games to more quickly and effectively level up and fire up your workforce with one huddle. You can onboard new employees up to 45% faster. There was actually a study done by the university of South Florida that has proven that you can train your employees 45% faster. This just isn't fluff. This is real stuff. One huddle, this new and improved way to educate your staff will try, translate into increased sales because you're creating more consistency with the guest experience in both front of house and back of house, i.e. menu development, just learning the menu, POS, limited time offers, food costs, things like this. To learn more, head to restaurantunstoppable.com slash one huddle. That's the number one in huddle like a football huddle. And when you use that link, you can get access to one huddle's game shop. 3,000 plus on-demand skill games on everything from bartending to serve safe, to the latest Amazon best-selling books and so much more. One more time slash one huddle This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro and they are launching their first time ever 60-day pilot Outfit, more butts and seats and that's not it. If you are interested in this, head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com/rsp. That's rsp for restaurant systems pro. www.restaurantunstoppable.com/rsp. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, chef founder of Swanye Hospitality Group, Chef Gavin Casing my man Gavin, are you feeling unstoppable? Yeah, feeling good. Dude, I'm psyched to be here. Special shout out to Kevin Sharp for calling you out episode 902. Did you work with Gavin?
1: I'm pretty sure that was. No, I, I, you know, Kevin did, um, did he do Top Chef when I judged it? Maybe that's what it was. I think that's where our our paths crossed the first time, probably. And then I know he did a stash here. He came in. He came into the trial run here. Actually, I think he did the stash before Top Chef.
0: Whatever the influence is, I know he has a lot of respect and yeah, admiration thank you. for you. You're, I mean, you're definitely inspiring people across the industry. That's why we're here to share your story. I cannot wait to dive in to who you are and how you got to where you are today. But let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us?
1: All right. So this, co- this comes from the Dalai Lama. When he was asked what surprised him the most about humanity, he said, man, because he sacrifices his health in order to make money, then sacrifices his money to recuperate his health, then is, not, then is so anxious about the future that he does not enjoy the present the result being that he does not live in the present or the future. He lives as if he is never going to die and then he dies never having really lived. Wow,
0: man. I feel like that's pretty self-explanatory, but really dive into why that resonates with you.
1: Well, I think it's I think it's often how we are, right? As as a, as a human base, we're so focused, at least me personally, so focused on goals, so focused on what I want to get after um you rarely ever sort of stop and say, wait a minute, let me just enjoy the moment. You know, it's like, you know, you think about like when 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 they interview somebody who won the divisional playoffs or going to the Stanley Cup. I'm just going to use hockey as the example. They interview the player who scored the goal in overtime and now you're going to the cup and what does the player say? We're going to enjoy this moment tonight and then tomorrow we get to work. It's right. like, that's it? You're going to enjoy one of the most incredible <laughs> moments of your life and you're going to sleep for half that time? Right. And, you know, I mean, and I get it. Like, we all say it because that's what the that's what we're trained to say. Um, and it's a mindset. You got to be able to turn it off before you just, like, go into that room and take over what's yeah. next. But I do think that you need to, like, take a step back every once in a while and be like, man, this is crazy. We built this? Right. This is what we have right, right. now? This is this is we should be excited dude. it's that prefrontal cortex is our biggest yeah. strength and
0: our biggest weakness because totally. it's where all that fear and that anxiety comes from a planning for the future and, and getting ahead and that's the one thing that we can do as humans that's unique is we can think about tomorrow today yeah and that strength is huge because it lets us plan and strategize and and bring people together that we need to, to execute the vision but at the same time we're constantly living in
1: that area of the future and yeah. it, it, it
0: and it's so important to be here right now.
1: Yeah, I mean, you got 40, 50 thoughts a minute. Yeah, and this is right? exactly
0: why I had Tom Sterner on the show recently, He, the author of The Practicing Mind, fully yeah. engaged, and it's just a thought to teach people because it's a skill. Yeah. It's a practice to yeah. learn how to let go of all that and to be present. It's not easy to do. So awesome way yeah. to get this thing started, man. I yeah. uh, can't wait to dive in further into how you got to where you are today. But where does it make sense to start, man? Take us, Take us to the beginning. What is the beginning for you?
1: Well, I mean, the beginning really was, you know, here in Minnesota, I was working, I was working at a subway, um, you know, summer job. got nothing to do really, besides being an idiot in the summer, and I was, you know, 15, 16 years old. and so was uh, just working with a bunch of my buddies at a subway, and this gentleman moves in next door. He opens up a, a fast, casual uh, restaurant called Pasta Time. He comes in every single Saturday, orders a four-inch tuna fish sandwich on a round bun. And he would sit there and like watch me. He'd watch me communicate with the guests. He'd watch me like put the food together. And then one day he's like, you know, you really have a good, you have a good um, understanding of this profession. I think you should do it for a living. Meanwhile, I would watch him buy this sandwich every Saturday and walk out the door and throw it in the trash. He wouldn't even eat it. He was just there to like observe. And I will never forget that he sat down with my parents when I was 16 years old. Now I'm working for him. And he's like, you know, your son really has a gift with this business. And this is what that means. Now I'm 44 years old. So this is a long time ago when you think about... 30 years. Yeah. When you think about the context of where our profession was 30 years ago versus where it is today. I mean, there weren't podcasts that have a t-shirt restaurant unstoppable (laughs) and you're sitting across that you're able to tell your story to, right? Like it just didn't really exist. I mean, what existed was you going home and saying to your family... I want to go be a professional chef for the rest of my life, and they tr- and try them to just it dropping it another, their head yeah. in shame and like <laughs> fear for you, right? Because being like, what does that mean? I don't understand what that means. Um, so it was really pivotal to have come across George. His name's George Sarah. To come across George at that time in my life because, you know, he he helped give me a, um, an outlet to be a part of something that was not sports related. I was very heavy into playing hockey when I was a kid and soccer, and so it was always around team. And I, loved the, I love what a team can bring to you. But I you know, I knew, I knew when I was 16, 15, 16 years old, I would do this the rest of my life. Yeah, man. And that do, was it. Do you remember, He
0: said, you told us that he saw something in you, a natural ability, a gift. A, uh, what were those skills that he saw? Did he ever tell you specifically what did it he was? He would
1: always like? say it was my hands. Okay. So, and I never really knew. And I I guess I don't necessarily still know exactly what it means per se, but he would just always say, It's your hands. Your hands understand food. You understand how to touch it. You understand how to move it. You you know, like you get that. So you need to be able to like focus on that gift. And you know, I, I I think also just when you take a step back and you think about why something like that is so pivotal, pivotal, it's why I believe so much in mentorship because somebody who was 50 years my senior, saw something in me that has led me to the to what I've been able to do yeah. all of my life so yeah. far.
0: I have a working theory that this is how we find our passion. I think that it is so important that we have a role, have a responsi- responsibility in our tribe to contribute something yeah. that we are constantly... So- Subconsciously aware of what people recognize in us because that guides us, that tells us where we should go. So if you see something in somebody, Give them the clues. Give them the hints. Let them know that they have something that. And not everybody can do this. Not everybody has what it takes to be successful in a kitchen or to be successful in the front of house. Like it, there are special people that are carved out to really make a career in this, and they don't know until somebody says something to them, until somebody yeah. makes them aware. Like you're better at this than most people because we're very bad yeah. at being self-aware, especially yeah, when we're well.
1: Young. And it's ego, right? Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I think a lot of it comes down. I mean, just, I mean, even if you take cooking out of it, like you know. <laughs> You go fly an airplane. You get on an airplane and somebody's flying the plane and, a, and somebody checks you in and then they take your baggage. It's like you come across incredible or not, but you come across amazing customer service somewhere. And that should be recognized. We're so, we're, we're so often trained to point out what is not correct yeah. that we haven't trained ourselves to point out what is correct. And so we sort of live in this negativity all the time. And, and our ego feeds that negativity instead of us taking a step back and be like, man, you're really amazing at what you do. And I just want to take a moment and say thank you. And I appreciate and that. And it feels so good. If it, it does.
0: It's, it's so important. It's one of those. It's literally a human need to be seen. Yeah. And when you do that, that's what you're doing. You're seeing somebody for their value, their worth. It's-
1: There's a great children's book called How Full Is Your Bucket? And I've talked about this before, and I, 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 love, I love this book. And it's literally about a, a grandfather, his two grandkids coming downstairs to have breakfast. The granddaughter's in a great mood. The grandson's in a terrible mood. And he's coming down, and he's like, you know, crabby at breakfast. And the grandpa notices and says, like, listen, if you help your sister, you'll fill a little drop in your bucket that sits above your head. A drop of water will go into that bucket. And then in turn, it'll go into her bucket. So the whole story then obviously shows this illustration of an actual bucket over this little boy's head. So he goes to school and he sits next to the kid that nobody sits next to at lunch. He looks up, he sees a drop going into his bucket. He sees a drop go to this other kid's bucket. And he starts doing all of these good deeds. And what he realizes is that at the end of the day, all the good deeds that helped others ended up filling up his bucket and overflowing it more than he ever expected. And it sort of pulled him back. He's like, how full is your bucket? Yeah. I love it.
0: Yeah. I love this man. Great way to get this thing started. And, uh, you ended up going to culinary school. Yeah. Was that, yep. it? did your mentor George steer you in this direction?
1: Yeah. We always thought it would be a right, the right opportunity. I mean, I, I was pretty, pretty gung ho about getting some sort of a formal education and understanding what, what this profession looked like besides just being in a kitchen. Um, I think kitchens have changed a lot from then until now. I think I think there's mo- probably there's there's equal opportunity to do work in kitchens and sort of get a lot of that formal training. But I I, I really do believe like an, a formal educational training if you can do it, if you can afford it, if you can get a scholarship, whatever it is, I think it's important because it allows you to see the profession at a different vantage point, point. and that just is why that's why I wanted to do it. So yeah. I went to New England Culinary Institute in Vermont. It's not. And unfortunately, it closed its doors. Um, but um, Chef Robert, his
0: last name is. Do you know who, what's, what comes to mind when I say Chef Robert? Does anybody?
1: Mm, there was a couple Burrell? of them. Burrell? Yeah, Burrell, Robert yeah, Burrell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, he was on the show. Oh, really? I
0: don't know if you knew him, but it made me think of that. Sorry to interrupt.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to think if he was an instructor for me or if he was at the Burlington. There was two campuses. Okay, there was one in Montpelier and one in Burlington. He might have been in the Burlington campus. Got it. Nonetheless, um, it was school. it was it was a great. It was a great opportunity. You do six months of school, then you do six months of an internship, which could be national, six months of school, and then six months of an internship which can be international. Um and I you know, I remember them telling me when we did the tour, like, you're gonna get out of this as much as you put into it. And I and, and I think that's for a lot of things. Yeah. Um but it sort of set me straight and yeah. I really needed that. You know, I went to college, I went to University of Wisconsin Oshkosh for a year. I gave that a shot, I just didn't have the I did not have the stamina, the grades, or the care to even be there. And I, like I told you, I knew when I was 16 I'd do this the rest of my life. What did your
0: parents tell, tell you when you told them this is what you want to do? Because it sounded like your, your mentor tried to sh- steer you down this path earlier. Did you get resistance?
1: No. In fact, I give them a lot of credit. I mean, I came back from college my first year... Uh, with a pink slip in hand that basically said you failed out for a semester, and my all of my books that I was from all of my classes, and I remember them opening up a book of anthropology, and they're like, "We didn't realize you took a cooking class." I said, "That's anthropology." I don't think I actually went to the class once. Like I just don't care. And I, and and you know, right, wrong, or indifferent, I I I knew what I wanted to do, and so I just wasn't. I was not going engaged. to let anything push me yeah, the you other way. Want it. You got to want it. And so they, you know, they saw that and they said, go for it. Yeah. You know, like we believe in you. We believe that this is what you want to do, but pick a great school, give it everything you got, you know? And, and, and I remember there was a time when, when, when I was in class, it was like the four of the first classes and uh, we got homework and, and I went home and I kind of treated the homework similar to like how I treated college homework. Like I'm not doing it and I couldn't fall asleep. I could not fall asleep, and I realized, okay, I, I I I got out of bed and I just read this book cover to cover and was like, if I want to do this, I got to give it everything I got. Otherwise, I'm cheating myself out of a life that I said I wanted to go after, and that was a, that was a really pivotal moment yeah, for sure. I love it. So, in what way do you think this experience steered you the
0: most? Like when you graduated at the end of your tenure in, in college, like why were you better?
1: Um. I don't know if I necessarily ever thought about being better. I I think I felt prepared. I would say that's probably the way that I felt. Confident. Like Yeah, yeah, I just I I I was very goal-focused. I was I was very prepared for what I wanted to tackle. I didn't have a lot of fear. I mean, the, there is a gift about being naive. And I and I and there's so a gift <laughs> and there's a gift to being young and going after things. I mean, we, you know, I really don't love seen the awards come out and say like oh are they the best under 30 or the best under whatever these ages are why well because I think that it drives us in a different way I think I think we we, if you're only going to achieve that it doesn't mean that you're not better at 31 right so it's like if you get that and I've won a majority of all those awards (laughs) so it's not it's not not to say that I didn't want to go after them and get them but it also made me self reflect and say well like wait a minute where am I now now that I've won all those, where does that, where does that put me? Right. And, and, and what next? Ha- yeah. And like, how do I drive towards that? And how do I continue to show my worth? And how do I, you know, how do I sort of feed what this is? Was I that think-
0: important to you early in your career to get this, these awards?
1: No, I think what was important was setting the goal and getting it, you know, and I'll give you an example. Setting the goal of,
0: of getting the award?
1: Of getting anything. Okay. W- whether it was working at a restaurant or being associated with uh, a group of people and restaurant tours, whatever it was, but I'll give you an example. Like in 2000, I think it was 2000. I was a, intern at Domain Chandon in Napa Valley, and uh, a friend named Abby Martinez and I were working together in that restaurant. And uh, I really wanted to be on the cover of Food & Wine magazine. I wanted to be a Best New Chef in America. They named 10 every year. It was a really important goal for me. And I think that the reason that it was an important goal is because I I read about chefs in that magazine who I who I knew, who I had respected, some who I had like grown up cooking with and really saw how they how they sort of messaged the way they were in their career. Um, And it was respected among the industry, and I loved that. And so I took the magazine, and I ripped it in half, gave Abby the word wine, and I kept the word food. And I said, just keep it in your wallet. We do not take it out of our wallets until we get on the cover of that magazine. So seven years later, I get the call that I'm on the cover of the magazine. Fly to New York City. Dana Cowan was the editor-in-chief at the time. Fly to New York to get my... um, Uh, award plaque which is like a little baby chef coat that had the best new chef in the year etc so i go up on stage and i get that and i hand her this wrinkled beat up word that said food she said what's this i said this is a cover of your magazine in my wallet for seven years it was just a way to remind That's me that cool, this man. was a goal
0: but also just uh not just you but to create a collective vision a collective goal a team goal everybody on the team has to be going to the same place yeah and and sharing those goals yep. is so powerful to do yep. it with other people to hold you accountable to remind you like i'm not alone right and to you need a team you can't do it alone yeah uh, so i love that part of it too and it's, it's interesting that you started talking about this because i i kind of I share that sentiment that you have where there's a lot of people who who hold this goal to to win an accolade or get mm-hmm. an accolade, and where I push back with it is I feel like and this is one of the things I picked up on on your episode nine hundred and ninety eight like yeah so like i've I picked up on these little clues and one of the clues is I feel like we as an industry get in trouble because we're all we're all sh- jockeying for these same recognitions, but there's right. only so many awards that can go out. And the other variable, the, the tough part to talk about is this bit. The fine dining business model is hard.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's not profitable. Yeah, unless you're like one of those people. It
1: is profitable. It can be. It is. But it is. It's, like- it's all about the deal.
0: But I feel like, what do you mean by
1: the deal? It's all about how you put it together. I mean, at the end of the day, <clears throat> it's as profitable as you want to make it. I mean, you can't, You no matter what, in my opinion, no matter what you do to create a business plan, you have to self audit that business plan often. You can't open up a restaurant and say, hey, we made money the first year. Let's keep doing the exact same thing every year because a lot of variables are going to change throughout that year. Inflation is going to happen. Prices are going to up. Prices are going to go down. Labor is going to go up. Labor is going to go down. There's all of these adjustments that you have to make. It's like fine dining is profitable. Otherwise, we wouldn't have as many restaurants as we have. But it's just, it's more of a grind to make that money. You know, it's more of a grind. So
0: the bridge I was trying to make is that you have to if you're you have to be in love with the, the the process. Yeah, not the goal, right? And unless you're in love with the process, you'll never reach the goal. Yeah, and I think that they get blindsided by the goal or they chase goals. Yeah, and that hurts their bottom line because they're trying to get recognized yeah. not be profitable. Yeah, you know, so it's a tr- it's almost like a trap where like unless I'm doing these crazy inventive things and being like like putting energy and resources into these these things, I won't get recognized. Yeah. So they get into trouble trying to get recognized and not being fiscally responsible.
1: Yeah, Th- Thomas, Thomas Keller is a good friend and a, and a business partner who I've known for 15 plus years. And I remember when Spoon first opened, we were getting all of this like recognition and all this everything, right? And uh, we were talking and, and I'll just never forget, he said to me, he says, don't ever forget that the accolades and the awards that you receive today mean nothing to the guests you, you serve tonight. Right and the and the guests you serve tomorrow because just because you got the award today does not give you justification to serve something mediocre the next day, mm. right? So to your point, if you've achieved that goal, the process to have achieved that goal doesn't stop when you get the award.
0: Right. Uh, absolutely. Do you think you would have had the same success out of the gate if you didn't have your name associated with so much success?
1: I don't know. I think I think it certainly helped, especially coming back. Coming back home, I mean, working for Danielle for so long, uh, so long. I mean, eight years. I mean, that's, that's a pretty long that's time. Big, but That's a big commitment. That's yeah. I mean, working for him as long as I did, I think it certainly gave people a different um, perspective of who I was. Um, I think that there's a negative and a positive in that. One, they didn't know who I actually was. And so there was sort of this cloud of who I was around me. And then there was me. So you have to kind of like manage that a little bit too. I didn't read a lot of the stuff that came out because I didn't want to believe it one way or the other, whether it was positive and or negative. It didn't, <clears throat> it couldn't make a difference to me because, to your point, it, it would sort of distract my process. Um, but I think certainly going after and working for the people that I worked for, I think it definitely set yeah, me up.
0: That's a good segue into. How do you think you got set up? Like if you could just hover over your career from when you graduated the culinary, uh, the New England Culinary Institute to, uh, you know, just before opening a uh, stable, sorry. Um, so many restaurants going through my head uh, spoon and stable. Yeah. Um, 2014, like what were the most pivotal points for you in your career? Like points of evolution.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I would say that, you know, when I, when I moved, to Switzerland, which was in 2000. Was this, I think. was this part of the program? It was, it was my internship. Got it. So I moved out to Switzerland. My dad was doing business there a lot. And so I moved out there, um, because I was curious and I wanted to know what's it like to work out there? What's it like to live out there? What's it like to <clears throat> learn a totally different language that I don't know how to speak or understand and right. work, work in an environment. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, but my, my point is, is like that sort of set me up to where a lot of my life has led me, which was I, I, I really leaned into curiosity. I didn't lean away from it. I didn't lean into comfort. I leaned into the opposite of comfort. And when you lean into the opposite of comfort, you put yourself in a position um, that opens you up to something you never thought you would see before, you know, which is there's a, lot of, there's a lot of digging deep as to who you are, to what it is that you want. Um, why you want to get that, et cetera, et cetera. So I spent a lot of time alone in those months and in those years with myself <clears throat> trying to figure out what it is that I wanted to achieve. And so the curiosity just always sort of drove me, you know, and then, and then, you know, fast forward to from 2000. So then I spent some time in London and then I moved to San Diego. I think we moved to San Diego in 2003, um, and then I became the chef of this restaurant, El Biscocho, in San Diego, which honestly was luck and universe colliding at the same Were time. The executive chef? Chef to cuisine. Okay. Yeah, so there, there was an executive chef for the hotel. Uh, I started out as a line cook, and then I moved my way up to sous chef, and then our CDC was uh, moved on from the establishment. And so my curiosity and, and my naive... You know, no shits given. Walks down to the food and beverage office and sits with the director and says, "I think I'd be a great person to be your CDC." That's awesome. At twenty four, and he's like, "What? (laughs) How'd you convince him?" I just said, "Come up and do a tasting." You know, I'm like, "Listen, we can sit, we can talk all we want, but let's taste the food. Let's see what we want." And you know, I listen. I his name was Stan Kaminsky, and and his boss was a guy named Rick Manser, and both Stan and Rick gave me they gave me an opportunity that i that i just didn't appreciate as much at the time because i didn't even know it was such an opportunity. I, mean, I was a 24-year-old kid who had never run a kitchen, you know, and 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 i mean they they certainly could have been like listen, we're going to hire somebody else, we're going to promote from within, we're going to do this and that. they took a chance on me.
0: but that, again, i think that's where the ignorance is kind of bliss. 100%. Like if you if you if you know, then you might not take the risk. and also, when, once you get into it, you know how hard it is that that realization, that awareness of the difficulty that you're signing up for yeah. might be enough to talk you out of it. So I, I agree 100 percent that it sometimes it's good not to know. Um, what was it? What, what was it in you, your curiosity that brought you to this restaurant? Why this? Like, what was it? So my wife and I were living in London at the
1: time. We put a map up of the United States and threw a dart. Hit San Diego and hit Atlanta, Georgia. We visited both cities, decided on San Diego. That's it. It's
0: a great place to throw a dart. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we got lucky. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Um, But there's a lot of opportunity
0: in San Diego. Why this restaurant group?
1: Um, So I had come across it. Um, I'd call I've been cold calling a lot of restaurants and a lot of restaurants either weren't hiring um, or I was told that I was overqualified. I had too much qualification to work in their restaurant. So at this
0: point you had graduated of the New England Culinary Institute. Yep. You have went overseas You're cooking in Switzerland. You had three years of professional, you know, including the work you were doing before you were in college. Right. Yep. Um, so I mean, I feel like that's relatively speaking, not a lot of experience compared to some other people who would go for the same job. Right.
1: Yeah, and I think that that the biggest thing that I learned was I had set this idea in my head that I wanted to be a chef by a certain age, right? What was that age for you? Uh, It was actually 28. Okay. So I was like, I want to be a CDC by the time I'm 28. But... I had set, and, and like why pick that number? No idea. You know, like what made that click? I don't know. Maybe that maybe one of the chefs I was working for was twenty eight in the CDC. I have no idea, but I really I, I really thought that I could capture working working as a CDC in this in this hotel. Um, I felt really secure, right? I had a lot of support. I, I, it was not about um, the restaurant was not necessarily built to make money. It was about the hotel as a whole, right? And so, they didn't come to me and say like, "Here's your food cost. Let's talk about your P and L. Let's like let's dive into all these 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 analytics." It's like it was nothing like that. They basically came to me and said, "Every guest that walks through that door, I want you to give them the best experience they've ever had in this restaurant." I'm like, "Yeah, I'm in. Let's go." Do you think that was a good experience or a bad experience? Did that serve
0: you or hurt you in the long run?
1: Oh, it definitely it definitely served me. I mean, right. I, I I think that had I not, um, had I not talking t- spoken to Danielle and his team when I worked for him, eventually it would have hurt me. Because I know a lot of chefs that get into this profession and they never see p and L, and then they open up a restaurant on their own, and they're like, "Shit, what do I do?" Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I, I mean, the best thing that I can say to that is like, it's not a light switch, you know, so you can't. You can't go from being a chef at a restaurant to being a chef owner at a restaurant and flip a light switch and all of a sudden know what to do. It has to be this, like you have to practice it. You know, when I went, when I was working for Danielle at Cafe Belude, I mean, I treated the restaurant like it was my restaurant. I knew the numbers intimately. I knew how we could make money. I knew what we would lose money. I knew months that were great months that were hard. I knew how to, I would always say, guys, we got a lot of PDRs. We got a lot of private events this, this month. Hide your sins. Let's buy some truffles. We'll can them. We'll jar them. We'll have them for next month when it's not so busy, but we can use that as a supplemental cost. We can charge for those, et cetera. And then we can start to make money a different yeah. way. I mean, I learned all of these little things, but again, it was my curiosity that helped me learn that. I mean, I remember sitting down with Danielle's CFO. His name was Marcel. And I said, teach, how do I know this? Like, if I pulled this lever to fix the food cost, when I pull that lever down, what happens over here? Which levers go up and down? What's the What does that effect? mean? Yeah. yeah. You know, and because and, it's all trickle down economics. Yeah,
0: man. I want to pull back layers on that, but I, I don't want to just skip over your experience in San Diego because I'm sure there's something there because you went from being a line cook uh, yeah. to the chef de cuisine. Like, yeah. Like that. Yeah. Knowing what you know now about leadership and running a kitchen and creativity, all the variables that come into being a good chef. Who were you then versus who are you now? What did you have to learn then? And what did you learn in that process? Man,
1: so much. So the first, one of the first times that I was working as the CDC, there was a young cook in, in Garmage and and he was chopping chives and they were so bad. And I got so mad. And so I reacted to him how I had seen my chefs that I worked for in London react, which was jump on the counter and stand on the chives, right? And just like tell them they're garbage, throw them in the trash. And Stan, our food and beverage director, saw me do this from afar. Now, Stan had a choice. He could have pulled me into the office right there by my arm or my ear and chewed me out. Instead, he he, he taught me a life lesson. He said nothing until the next day. He called me down to his office and said, hey, let's just touch base on a couple of things. Made me feel very disarmed walking in. Okay, I didn't feel like anything was going to happen. And he just calmly talked to me about what I did yesterday and the cause and effect of what happened yesterday and why what I did in reacting that way was was going to either shape who I was in the future um, or not. And it really was a very, very um, life-changing moment because it made me self-reflect like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I worked for a lot of chefs, some who were amazing at being able to teach and some who were not. And I remember working for the ones that were not great at teaching, thinking to myself, I would never be that person. And yesterday I was that person. And so I pulled back and said, okay, now how do I not be that person? What does that look like? And so I, I, I sort of like dug back into my, into my mind and said, well, what, what were the things that I've learned in the couple years that I've been cooking that made me happy? One was sitting down and having family meal with everybody. We would do it in Switzerland twice a day. And it was a moment that I loved. We'd sit down for 45 minutes. And I remember the first time I did it, I ate so quick. Went back to the station to make bread. And my friend Emil came up to me and says, Gavin, why are you getting up? I said, well, I'm done eating. I got to get back to work. The bread's got to get made. He says, the bread will get made. This 45 minutes is for us. Mm. This is where we connect with each other on a level of friendship, not work. Right. So we eat for 45 minutes. We have coffee. We read the newspaper. We talk about life. We stare at the Swiss Alps and the French Alps. And we walk outside of the garden if we want some fresh air. Yeah. And I'm like, what?
0: Yeah, I think that's kind of where like, like the United States culture or like extreme Western culture really kind of got unhinged where we're just go, go, go all the time. We forgot to be present right yeah it's one it's kind of like one that that lesson we learned earlier just uh how we open today's conversation
1: yeah right exactly
0: um any other key points of evolution during this time working in san diego with stan it was a rick
1: yeah yeah i mean the the team of cooks that that i was working with i still stay in touch with the majority of them um i mean we we were so we were just so young and so um Naive, man. We had no idea what the hell we were doing. And I mean that like in a really positive way. When I when I say that sometimes people are like, wow, what do you mean you had no idea what you're doing? It's like, no, no, no. Like we had no idea what we were doing. We went to work every day. We made a menu. And then we would stick with the menu and we would taste it. We would taste it off of one another. We'd go out to the dining room. We'd talk to the guest. We'd listen to what the guests have to say. Then we'd adjust the amen. We would adjust the menu. And what we did is we had no idea what we were doing, which meant we also had no ego. We didn't walk into that restaurant and say to ourselves, no, 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 I'm the chef. This is what we're putting on the menu. It was like, no, 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 let's figure this out together and as a group. We would go surfing together. We'd go to the markets together. Um, And I still stay in touch with the majority of them because it was such a powerful place to be. We would sit down every single day and put a tablecloth over a stainless steel table and we would eat lunch. How did that group approach affect your creativity? Uh, Greatly, actually, because you finally then don't feel like you're alone in the creativity, right? I think that we put a lot of pressure on ourselves that if I'm not the one coming up with the food, someone's going to figure that out, figure that out, and then I'm going to have this, I mean, it's imposter syndrome. Yeah. yeah,
0: and I mean, beyond that, I think you're opening yourself up to the collective knowledge. Right? Of course. Like, why be one person when I can be four people, Yeah, right? And bring... and you're all,
1: yeah, and you're also learning about how to manage that right? because there are going to be people that come to you with ideas that are not good ideas, right? And so that's a test for you. Now, how do you manage telling somebody who thought so deeply about an idea that's just not a great idea and it's not going to work for that restaurant? How do you approach them and say to them, like, I love the thought process. I don't think it's going to work here and this is why. So let's take your idea and let's just shift it a little bit. Let's think about it a little bit differently because the end goal is we want to hit this. Mm-hmm. So in order for us to hit this, we just got to shift your idea a little bit. So go home and think about that shift and then come back. Let's talk about it again.
0: I love it. Um, I think we can move on to your time at Daniel. Um, how how long were you in San Diego before
1: coming back east? Um, I was there almost five years. Five years. It was like four and a half years. So 2007. 2013. Or sorry, 2003. And then I moved to Danielle in two thousand seven, two thousand seven, because he
0: got James Beard Ry- Rising Chef Award two thousand eight. So, um, so again, take us like, what, why, why Danielle? Well, like, what, what was drawing you to this restaurant? So much.
1: So, <clears throat> the first, so he he wrote a book called Letters to a Young Chef. I don't know if you've ever read, read
0: it. I haven't read it, but I've heard of okay. it.
1: So I read this book when it first came out, <clears throat> and I remember saying to my wife at the time, "I'm like, I got to work for this guy. If I if I if I just can work for." if I can just work for one more person before I open my own restaurant, I need to work for Danielle.
0: What was it about that book that made you say this?
1: I think it was really... You could read in the book and you could like feel in the book the way he is as a mentor and the way he is as a teacher. Um, Somebody who's not driven um, by awards and ego and accolades, but is really driven about teaching the next generation to make them better. And I could feel that. And so... I said, I'm going to work for him. So I did, listen, I did a lot of crazy shit when I was younger. And one of them was like, I would write letters to every famous chef in America. I would write Christmas cards to them. Wow, dude! Um, They didn't know me. I didn't know them. I'd never met them, but I would send them Christmas cards every year. Charlie Trotter, Danielle Ballou, Thomas Keller, you name them. Every single one of them would get a Christmas card from me. Ironically, you're partners with some of these people. Today. I am, but I was just in my mind, I was like trying to think like if I can put into the universe that I want to meet these yes. people someday, maybe it'll You're happen. manifesting that, you know, I mean, Charlie as an example. <clears throat> he, the first year I wrote him a Christmas card and then I'll get back to Danielle. Yeah, yeah. He sent me every book he ever wrote and signed him Jesus. as a gift. And then what's wild is we became pen pals. I mean, we were friends, but like literally every time I was in a national magazine or newspaper, Charlie would cut it out like a proud father and he would staple it to a letter that said, congratulations. And then he wild. would sign his name. I mean, I have all of them. It somewhere. blows my mind that
0: people like Charlie or Thomas Keller. Um, was it Charlie? Trotter or Char- Thomas? Char- Keller? Charlie did that. Charlie did that. Yeah. People like Charlie. Like I've seen the documentary. That guy was nose down
1: like, yeah. all the time. Yeah.
0: But they still find time. It blows my mind. Always do. To, to do to to have a pen pal yeah you know like yeah. how time consuming was yeah
1: that be? it was crazy and i'm
0: sure you're not the only person that like, exactly i, I knew a big part of his stories he loved writing letters he did that was a big part of his relationships yep. and Dude, to, to be in that circle at such a young time in your career. But that's why crazy. did it happen? Because you took the initiative because yeah. you put it out into the universe. Yeah, I could be way better about this as somebody who reaches out to people to interview them. But I still feel like I could be way better about reaching out to the, these big names. I don't know why I don't, but that's inspiring for me.
1: Well, I think like, we just like, don't because we're afraid of rejection, right? Like, why, you know, like, and it's who, like who, for me, me, I yeah. was 24 years old, 25. I'm writing their Christmas cards. If they don't read the card, I have no idea. Yeah,
0: but just opening the door and doing something in a, in, a, in a time where a handwritten letter is so personal yeah. and so romantic. Yeah. A, I think that it's just a lost opportunity. You know, yeah. like if you just take the time to be present and to, to, to extend the like, to open the door. But anyway, so,
1: so, I, so Daniel, speaking of, yeah. I write Danielle a letter in 2005 so the rest so El Biscocio and, and Ranch Bernardo and they, they allowed me to do stages around the country. So I could do two or three, I can't remember. Maybe it was three stages around the country, anywhere I wanted, and they would help fund that. Just to help me with education. You know, I was a young chef. I I, I needed to see what else was out there. So I write Danielle a letter and I said um, you know, that I would like to work for him for a week for free. I I'm there to observe. I just want to see like uh, how does his kitchen work? How does his leadership work? How does his creativity work? What's funny is that everything I wanted to see, it's like, dude, you're not going to see that in a week. But nonetheless, I wrote the letter. I fly out to New York. He accepts me for the stage. <clears throat> uh, so I started on a Monday. Danielle was not there Monday and Tuesday. He was in out of town somewhere. He's in town Wednesday night. The King of Spain's in for dinner. Danielle's there. I work the rest of the week with him. And then Saturday night he and I sit down and we talk in his office and it was a really powerful conversation. I mean, you're talking about somebody who, in my mind, was a top three in the country, top five in the world oh, for, sure. for what they're doing, yeah. right? And he spent hours talking with me. I'm a 25-year-old kid from San Diego, California <clears throat> and he's he's spending these hours on end after a busy Saturday night service up in his office, which is called the Skybox, to the point where honestly we got done talking, I think at almost three in the morning and he says, when's your flight? I said, I leave at six. He says, let's go downstairs. We'll get some fresh muffins. The bakers are here. You can go to the hotel, grab your bags, just go to the airport. That's what I did. So that was, that created a really strong friendship and bond. What did you guys talk about? Just life, food, cooking, dreams, goals, aspirations. Um, you know, what he saw then, I still don't know. We've never actually discussed it. But what I will tell you is that the day that I left that restaurant group to open my own restaurant, uh, which he's a partner of, my going part of my going away gift was that letter. Because he saved the letter. Wow. And in the top right corner of the letter, it says to Cynthia, his director of human resources, please save and put on file. He could be a good future chef for us. And he handed me the letter and was like, it's your time now.
0: That's awesome, man. Yeah, it's
1: beautiful. I have so many questions for you. It's hard to pick a direction.
0: So, so you write. I'm, I am curious. Where did you learn about this idea of just writing letters? Who, who put that in you? Where did you learn about the, that power of, of almost manifesting your future?
1: I don't know. That's a good question. I've, I've always been somebody who likes to write. I journal a lot. I still do. I always have. Um, I think it's just it's always been a way for me to get what it is in my head. Um, out of my head mm. you know and and it's always been a way for me to um, really think through the problems you know I think often you can't control what you can't control yeah and and I still to this day have to stop myself and be like okay, I know you're pissed. I know you want to go off the deep end but you cannot control what just happened so you got to figure out a different way to compartmentalize that. And to, to, to reject what you, what you want it to do to you. Yeah. Right. And yeah. find a different way because it's not going to work. Well,
0: writing it down is almost like giving birth to your ideas. It's yeah. kind of a weird analogy, but like when you have an idea, it's still in you, it's, it's, it's only reality for you. Yep. Right. But when you get it out, when you write it down, it becomes reality for you. Yep, like it's there time. and it's not lost. Right. Yeah. And uh, I think there's just it's, it's manifesting. You know, yeah. it's, it's there's tons of power there. And the other thing that I think really stood out to me, too, that I want to resurface is we don't take time anymore to to have long conversations with people. Yeah. And the power of just sitting down yeah. and having a long conversation with somebody yeah. sitting across the table, making eye contact, yeah. listening, yeah. learning, sharing perspective. And that's one of the reasons why the show is two hours long now. Yeah. 'Cause like I couldn't get done what I had to do in an hour. The the universe was telling me I need to do this in an hour. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I was like, screw that. Yeah. Like, I need to like yeah. get to know these people and so much can come from just taking time. Like w- would you have gotten that opportunity if you you know, if he didn't take the time to get to know you, you know, no, and like, I, would it, he have benefited from yeah. your success.
1: No, and I don't think, and I and I don't think we would have been able to. I mean, if it would have been a, hey, thanks for coming and do this dodge for the week. Good luck in San Diego. Shake your hand. You're gone. Yeah, type of thing. My my life would be different. Right. You know, it just would be. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I was pretty gung ho about working for him. Right. So I was always in his face about stuff and just asking and chef, what do you think about this? And I'm I'm working. You know, and then. And then what ended up happening was 2007 was a really pivotal year of my career because it was the year that I won Best New Chef in Food and Wine Magazine. And then I competed for Team USA for the Bocuse d'Or cooking competition in France. Did Daniel run that? He does now. Okay. um, But we we had nothing prior to 2008. So when I competed, I was the last American to compete under a non-organizing committee. Got it. So I put myself in debt, a lot of money as a result. Two thousand and eight, Mentor, which was at that time called Bocuse Store USA, was founded by Danielle Baloud, Thomas Keller, and Jerome Bocuse, and so now we all run it together. I'm the president for the team. Thomas is the president for Mentor, and Danielle is our chairman. So it's it's wild. That is wild. Um, and you know it's 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 interesting because. You know, that, that whole idea of like what, what I wanted to go after and what I wanted to see, it, it, it all kind of happened in 2007. You know, after Boku's Store, I did a show on Food Network called The Next Iron Chef. And I remember going on set, man, and like Michael Simon's on set and, and Tracy Desjardins is on set. I mean, it was just like Chris Cosentino, all these people. And I'm like, fuck, I've read about all these people. Right. You know, like, what am I supposed to do? Um, but then Danielle called me. And I said, you know, I'm really, I'm really itching to leave San Diego. Um, I think I have two options. Option one is I open a restaurant here and I stay. And option two is I leave San Diego and go work for somebody. And I'd like to do the latter and I'd like to work for you and I'd like to work in New York City. And he says, okay, I don't know if I have anything yet, but we, we were able to find a position uh, to be the executive sous chef at Restaurant Danielle. There was an opening, a shift, I can't remember. Long story short, on that part, is that three days after we had that conversation, his chef de cuisine at Cafe Belude resigned. His name was Bertrand Chamel, and he was moving to Virginia with his family. Danielle calls me and he's like, Change of plans. Yeah, good timing. You're CDC. That's,
0: so you went straight from, a CD, from working at a different restaurant. Usually, I'm surprised because I've noticed that with a lot of these restaurants like Danielle, uh, French Laundry, no matter who you are, yeah, you start at the very bottom.
1: I was the only other person besides Andrew Carmelini to come in as a CDC. Did he ever you ever tell why? Um, not I don't think he ever really told me why. I think it was just for him a gut feeling.
0: Hmm. Well, you guys took the time to get to know each other. Yeah, like he yeah. had he had time to get the data. You had yeah. to understand who you are,
1: and I wasn't going to fail.
0: So let's get into it, like. From the, that from that conversation to your time, your tenure there, eight years. Mm-hmm. What was that evolution like? What I mean, it must have been hard for you. I'm imagining to go. Uh, that's a big. That's a lot of pressure. Do yeah, you realize it, it, what it, you're getting yourself into.
1: Yeah, no zero zero idea. Again. Which is exactly why <laughs> yeah. it makes sense. I mean, I remember you know I moved to San Diego or New York. I was 28, I think, when I moved there and got the job. Um, yeah, because I turned 29 basically the day after the I got the Beard Award. Or something like that or a day before or whatever. Um, but yeah, it's you know, I didn't necessarily knew, know what I was getting into. What I knew was I was taking over an iconic restaurant that up until that point didn't have a lot of chefs. But what I will say is that like my first week into being the chef there, the kitchen phone rang. Do you know the name Alex Lee?
0: That sounds familiar.
1: So Alex was the original chef de cuisine at, at Danielle, okay. at Restaurant Danielle. He's from Long Island, an amazing guy. Uh, you was know, well, he with Thomas Keller at first? Mm-mm, no. No. Am i
0: Lee? am I thinking? It? Somebody else. Corey Lee. Yeah, Corey. That's
1: what it is. Um, and so Alex was a legend and he was no longer working for Danielle. I think at the time, and I know now, he was working at a country club in New York or in Connecticut, or I'm not really sure where, but he was a legend. Like if you were working for Danielle, you always heard about Alex. Got it. So it's lunch service, kitchen phone rings. I pick up the phone. Cafe Kitchen. This is Gavin. How can I help you? Gavin, it's Alex Lee. I like stop. I'm like, oh my God. (laughs) I'm like, chef, how are you? He's like, I'm good. How are you? I said, I'm good. He's got a really thick, he's a Chinese American, but he's got a thick Long Island accent. Like thick. And he speaks perfect French. He says, I'm just calling to wish you good luck. He says, this is going to be a really tough journey for you. He says, but no matter what you, what you do, you're, whatever you put into it, you're going to get out of it and give it everything you got because this is the best guy you'll ever work for in your life. And I said, thanks, chef. I can't wait to meet you. He says, it'll happen someday. Have a great day. Hung up the phone. Well, how'd you feel after that? Oh, man, I was on the cloud nine. I mean, you know, th- w- what shocked me was that like somebody outside of my circle paid attention. And was like looking and saying like, oh, who's this young person now taking over for Daniel? I didn't realize, that was the first time I realized how big of a deal it was to take over that job. Right.
0: And I think, again, it's a testament to the the caliber of individual that's drawn to that type of restaurant where they take the time just to recognize and see people. He never met you before. He had no, he he didn't have to do that. But it's just, again, a testament to the character of an individual that's drawn to, to restaurants like this.
1: And it's great. It's funny that we're talking about this now because this week is Danielle's 30th anniversary celebration wow. of restaurant Danielle. Yeah, I leave for New York tomorrow morning to go celebrate. That's wild. So we have a huge party at Danielle and it's going to be all of us ex chefs and alumni and servers and everybody who's going to oh, be man, there and his guests. Brilliant. And, um, it's really a celebration for him. Right. And for everything he's and done, All he's done. I mean, yeah. Is, it's so incredible. Yeah. He is
0: on my list. I yeah. don't know if you can make it happen, but yeah. I'm not going to push it. Yeah. Yeah. Publicly, yeah. Let's but, do it. And, oh my God. That'd be amazing. But so get into what it was like, like mm-hmm. you, you get the call, you're yeah. working. What, what was the challenge? Where was where, was there a challenge for you? Like, where did you struggle yeah, at that? Yeah,
1: there was a lot. I mean, when I first got there, I took over a really tough kitchen. I mean, a lot of the guys had worked for Andrew Carmelini for a long time and now Bertrand. And Andrew, Andrew runs his kitchen really focused, really tight. And they're very dedicated to 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 him and to his standards, um, all of which I respect. But it's really hard to come in and take over a kitchen for another chef, Andrew or whoever, who has set these standards. Because if you don't have either A, the exact standards or standards that are higher than that person, which they're already at the highest you can be, you're you're sort of... You are very disrespected kind of immediately, right? And shot down. So I felt that. I felt that when I got there. I was young. Um, I was younger than some of the sous chefs. I was younger than some of the cooks. Is there any resentment? Oh, I'm sure.
0: Yeah, I could imagine.
1: Um, yeah, and I was on TV every Sunday because the Food Network was still airing my show that I was on. So that was weird. Right. Because now if they... now they don't know who I am, but at 9 p.m. on Sunday, they can watch me on TV, which is cut a certain way to make me look who I am, right? Um, and and so it was a little bit, it was it was a very hard situation to take over, but I really didn't let, I I didn't let all of that sort of cloud what it is that I wanted to do and why I originally took that job, and so Danielle was great. I mean, I remember calling him and we were going through some shifts in the staffing in the back of the house and. I had given him my, my, my recommendation of, of who I thought should stay, who I thought should leave, um, who had kind of done enough time there and maybe it was time to go on or maybe there was another restaurant within the group they could move to. I didn't know. And he was really, really supportive. I mean, he came into the kitchen that day and sort of set everybody straight and just said, Hey... This is the chef of the restaurant. This is somebody I chose, and we need to get behind it. And that was a really pivotal moment that changed it. Chris Nye, who's the executive chef for me here at Soignet and and helps run Spoon, he was one of the cooks in that kitchen ten years ago. Wow. And I remember him coming up to me in the middle of a lunch service. He's like, hey chef, my name's Christopher Nye. I'm from South Minneapolis. I'm like, I don't care. Go to work. You're on Pasta Station. You know, it's like I just didn't have time to care. Right. But it was it was, but but I did care. I mean, that's the thing, is like I really did. I was just I was sort of putting up a shield around me because I felt so vulnerable to them in a way that I just had never felt before. I mean, I'd, you have to understand I was coming from a kitchen in San Diego where there were seven of us, where we ate dinner every single day together. We intimately knew one another in a way that was just like beautiful to a kitchen in New York. That was like, they didn't give a shit who you are. They didn't give a shit where you came from and they were going to trample all over you and take advantage of you. And so I had to really shift my mentality. Um, but once I found my team and started to slowly get my group of, 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 of cooks in there, and then I could get my culture and how I how I believed a kitchen should be ran with me as as the chef um, not to not that Andrew's way was wrong it's just not my way mm-hmm. right and that's it's no different than a CEO taking over for another CEO. What happens when a CEO takes over for a company? Somebody gets fired immediately, right? right? And that's not because that person's bad at their job. It's like, hey, we're just changing the way this is all going to look. Yeah. And so we need to sort of, I need to set up this like, this is chess. I got to put the players where they're going to go. And, and I'm going to help control that. So it was a tough kitchen to take over. And it, and, it, and it broke me in ways that really built me up and made me so much stronger. Yeah. So in
0: your eight-year tenure there, this is the, what, the first six months? first year it it's take- the first year first year yeah. what was when you had that team together paint the picture of how like what, what, what were you going for what was the game of chess you were oh
1: playing? man we were we, we were we were the we were the best i mean we just you know there's a great so there's a book called 11 rings and phil jackson wrote it the basketball coach got it <laughs> he talks about another book called um uh tribal leadership yeah which is a little bit boring but it's a good book um but effectively, there's five, there's five levels of leadership, okay? Level one is gang, sort of like a gang-related, like I'm going to kill you, I'm going to take you out. Level two is the same, but it's a group of us. My group is going to take your group out, okay? Number three is sort of the most common way businesses are run, at least in the United States, which is, hey, you and I might be good friends, and we probably have beers on the weekend, and our kids run around and, and hang out at the pool, but we're in sales, And if I sell more than you, and I'm going to get that corner office faster than you. So even though we're friends, my goal is really to step over you. Stage four is a really beautiful place to be, which is you collectively as a team just genuinely believe that you're better than the other teams. That is not ego. That's a belief. It's what you you feel it. Stage five is the most amazing place to be, which is stage four, but the most important ingredient, which is you're having fun. Mm. Watch any pro team on planet earth, win a national championship and tell me they're not having fun doing it. I mean, I was watching the Celtics last night. Tell me they're not
0: having fun. They didn't win the national championship, but it was game seven and didn't they look were, hard.
1: Oh my God. They,
0: they wiped, they, they yep. wiped the floor with the six years, man. It didn't look hard, but uh, they, yeah, they're having fun, man. And sure. that's, that's the difference. Yeah.
1: And so we, we got to this position where we just, we knew we were good, but we were having fun. How do you go from a four to five? I don't I don't know. I mean, it's it's I'd say I I'd say we were at that five for a little bit And then we probably retracted and stayed consistently always at a four Is it a point where your
0: habit kind of takes over and like where you can get to the four and consist where like I feel like there's a level of stress Getting to a four, but then once you get used to that Maybe habit takes over where you can be present and enjoy it, or maybe I don't know. I'm just curious
1: I think a lot of it has to do with drive I think a lot of it has to do with like anybody can get to a four to a five, but once you get there and you recognize that you're there, to your point, how do you stay there? How do you stay? How do you stay consistent with that? Um, a lot of it's personnel. Who else is around you, and what do they want? What do they achieve? You know, we would have interns that would come and work for us, and and I would say to them every single time during the interview, I would say, listen, you don't have to worry when you work in this kitchen that anybody's going to yell at you or I'm going to be this person that's not going to sign your internship papers. Look, when you come to me in three months, I'm going to sign your papers. Just do the work that they've asked you to do. Do the work that we've asked you to do and you'll pass. Mm. But if you come in and you give this kitchen 90% of effort, they're going to give you 10. If you give them 98, they're going to give you 10 because you're just one intern more than they've seen the last three months. And for them... They're coming in every day and they're giving 150% every single day and they want to give it to you, but they need to see that you want to give it back to they them. have to be selective because you yeah.
0: can't give their extra to everyone. They have to give it to the ones that deserve
1: it. That, well, it's not even deserve it, but that want, want it because it. it's not about desire. Got it. You know, it, it, it's literally like I want to make sure that I am going to be with the right people and I can tell you there are people who work for us as interns who are on national stages now. And doing great things, and have won wonderful things, and have great restaurants, and all these things. And I mean, I could see when they were twenty years old that they were going to do that because they came in with a different mentality, you know. And so, and and I think also, honestly, like when you're surrounded with that many people that desire to be at a stage four or stage five, if you're not that person, it's a pretty self aware thing to come up with, and just sort of like stand around, stand up, you look around you're like maybe i don't belong in this room i know i want to be a great chef but maybe just this is not my yeah. room and
0: that's there's a lot of truth to that i mean you've got to be in the right culture not everyone's meant to be with everyone you got to find your people over time yeah uh, get that perspective follow your curiosity yeah. like you've done and, and offer yourself that perspective but before we move on to Swanier and how you've built this i, I have to hover over this idea of fiscal responsibility that like it looks like you, you got during your time with Daniel. Yeah. Um, Cause we mentioned your first experience. It was, it was a restaurant that was an appendage to a hotel and it's kind of an afterthought sometimes, mm-hmm. but this is the first time where like, the, the restaurant is front and center. The restaurant is your bread and butter. This, yep. this is, you have to be profitable. So you, it sounds like you had a lot to learn in this vertical. So oh what were those lessons? Give it like dive. <clears throat> like you started getting into it. Like if I pull from over here, how does that, rough, you know, affect down the road or over there? Like what were the biggest lessons on fiscal responsibility? They tell you,
1: I mean, I think the big, the biggest lesson was is that I knew no matter what I had a safety net. If we fell, and that safety net was a group of people that Danielle had employed that was his executive team that would teach us how to be better at our jobs and what we were doing mm. i realized early on you know it's 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 often um presented incorrectly that a chef is 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 always behind the scenes and in the kitchen and prepping food and yes we are doing that but we also have to understand sort of that fiscal responsibility, unless you have somebody else that's doing it for you. I don't. I don't have that. I don't have. I didn't have that. Right. We were responsible for our P and L at our individual restaurants that worked for Danielle, but there were systems in place that would make sure we wouldn't fail. And so, <clears throat> what were those I, systems you that you were that you first encountered with Danielle? Um, reading P and Ls. I mean, how do you read a P&L? You know, yeah, you it blows
0: could, my mind that you were the chef de cuisine yeah. or the
1: executive chef. It was the same thing. And that this is the first P&L that you see. Yeah. You know, that's crazy. I uh, mean, it's just so common, though, because, you know, rest, restaurants in general, I think, are very secretive about those things, because I think that there tends to be a feeling of, like, if everybody sees the numbers but doesn't understand... Where the number go? Like, what, like if you look at a top line number, just make the math easy. You look at a top line number and you're like, wow, we made $10 million this year. Yeah. And if you're making, make the math easy. You're making $100,000 a year as the chef. And you see the restaurant making $10 million. If, if your first instinctual thought is, I need to be paid more money because of what I'm seeing top line, you're in the wrong business. Right. Because you're not taking a step back to look at it and say, "What happens when that 10 million gets filtered out of everything that it has to go to, and then what is the net at a restaurant like Danielle? Like, yeah, or any any yeah, restaurant, exactly, any restaurant in the country, right, right? You know, and so i I do believe that perhaps I was able to go to the executive team in a way of like, I just want to learn. <laughs> I'm a sponge. Tell me everything I need to know to know to to understand what this P&L is doing and when it acts the way it acts how do I shift it if you tell me the food cost is too high at i'm going to make it up 35% how do i get it to 30% right. what are what are those things that we need to do and you know, you learn all of those like little things like okay, well now we have buying power because we have five restaurants in Manhattan. We don't have three anymore. You know, now we have this, we have this and you're starting to learn all these things. You know, you're you're coding invoices. You're you know, you're doing a lot of work that people just do not see.
0: So what is the biggest takeaway from that? I know there's so many variables that can influence the P&L, but like if, if there's one major takeaway that you can pay for to somebody listening to
1: this that you weren't
0: doing before this experience. What was that?
1: Um, I'd say probably the biggest takeaway is to look at the big picture of it. I think, you know, when you look at your monthly P&L or in some, some restaurants look at it weekly, probably too, uh, or monthly, there's going to be months that you're going to make money. and There's going to be months that you don't make money. Um, but you have to be self-aware enough to like say, okay, what do we got to self audit here? What are we doing? Right? What are we doing wrong? What are we spending too much money on? What are we not spending enough money on? Right. Um, and I think we sort of get into this experience where, and I learned this for sure at Cafe Blue with Danielle was like, <clears throat> you know, we would have a huge comp budget. We would comp, we'd comp a lot of stuff. We'd have a huge flower budget. We'd have a huge linen budget. And I was always like, man, it's crazy how much we spend on all this stuff. And I remember him saying, yes, I understand that. But us committing to that excellence... Gives us this. Gives us
0: the, the right to be able to ask for what we need to execute this. Too. Absolutely. But I think if I'm reading between the lines, the biggest thing that I'm hearing from you is tracking. Mm-hmm. It's tracking. It's knowing where
1: every penny goes. Oh, yeah.
0: It's, it's, it's fine-combing everything, going through, following the journey of every penny and seeing yeah. where it ends up.
1: We, we did an exercise once there. We did it here, too. But it was like we had a huge... um whiteboard or I don't I don't remember maybe it was a foam core board anyways so on it was like a pint container it's a go container a quart container a towel a piece of tape paper um, whatever right (laughs) and then next that was the cost of everything right and so if somebody comes up to you and says, I'm just gonna take some family meal to go and I put it in a to-go container with a lid on it and I put it in my locker and then I go home with it and I wash it at home and then I throw that in the trash or I save the res- or I save that to go container at home and I never bring it back to the restaurant, that's seventy three cents. Now times that by three hundred and forty five days that you're open. Adds up. And just times it by ten employees. Give me that cost. I'm not going to. You know, and it's yeah, like it's once up. you see that cost, you're like, yeah. Whoa. Okay, this is we need to make sh- make sure people are aware that when you grab a SeaFold towel, it's two cents every SeaFold towel. So if you're in the bathroom and you're washing your hand, you grab ten of them and you wash and you dry your hands with ten SeaFold towels, it's twenty cents.
0: Yeah, yeah. So and we we I mean we could probably dissect this further, but I feel like for the sake of moving the conversation along, because I want to dive into your story, man, like, of opening your own thing and doing mm-hmm. your own thing. Uh, but I do want to direct my listeners. I did a course. I, I collaborated with Rudy Mick, and he he takes the network um we have members and and the restaurant stoppable network step by step through a weekly inventory and what that looks like and how to track these things so you guys feel like you need to be better about that he he leaves nothing off the table so do check that out um any other big lessons i mean eight years of your career um you're working your chef de cuisine um or I mean, eventually became the executive chef too. Yeah. So
1: by the time I left, I was I was his uh, executive chef and director of culinary operations for the Cafe Blue brand. So I ran New York City, Toronto, Palm Beach. Was that a hard transition for you? No. No, I mean, the hardest was just more travel. I mean, that was probably the biggest transition. You know, I it, the, the, the one thing um, that I always sort of stuck by was like, I would never ask for something that I couldn't necessarily handle. You know, so I would go to him and say like, "Okay, I'm ready for more." But me being ready for more meant like I was ready to travel more if that was if that's what it took, or I was ready to work harder if that's what it took, whatever it was. So it wasn't a huge transition. So correct
0: me if I'm wrong, but from graduating, you went overseas. Yeah, um, you worked in two restaurants or two restaurant part of two restaurant groups, I guess. Yeah, um, before opening your own place.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I worked for I worked at Elvis coach. and then I worked for Danielle
0: and then winning a James Beard Award in 2018. I feel like that's so few steps along the way compared to people
1: I've talked to Yeah. Yeah,
0: but I think it's also a testament of surrounding yourself with the right people, you know, and not being afraid to take a shot and to to do the unexpected. Yeah, to get noticed To Mm -hmm. to to get to get connected with these people. And I'm sure I mean, I I'm curious like because you said he's an investor. So like Mm -hmm. that conversation of I'm ready to leave. Um, did you like? How did he, like, how did that go or to the point where he? Yeah,
1: you know, was I was good. investing in you. Like, I mean, was, it started oh, four okay. years before I left. Okay, you know, so I sat down with him and I said, Chef, I'm going to leave at some point. I'm, I don't know what that looks like, and I don't know what that means. And I'm not here to threaten you for any anything. I'm not. I'm not looking for a pay increase. Nothing. I'm just saying Candid. that at some point, I would like to go and open up my own restaurant, and maybe someday that never happens. Maybe those are not in my cards. But if they are. I would love to explore that with you and I would love to have an open dialogue with you because I do not want you to ever feel like I'm doing something behind your back as a mm. result. Why is this so important? It's mentorship. The amount of time and energy and effort that he put into me, I, I, I would have felt awful if I had not gone to him and said, out of just pure respect of what you've given to me, I need to tell you this is on the cards for me. I think I could be wrong. But if it is, I just want to learn from you if it's the right opportunity or if it's the wrong opportunity. I'm going to trust you one way or the other. You know, it's funny because it's like, yes, I was in only two restaurants before opening my own. I didn't mean
0: that disrespect. No, no, not at all. No, you're exactly right.
1: And what, what I think is amazing to me is like... I did that only because I had found the person, my mentor, to say like, "All right, I'm glued to you. I want to learn." And, and I person think, too. yeah, and I, th- I think what we get, I think that we get into harm's way when we think to ourselves, "Okay, I've been here for a year and I haven't moved off a fish station. I got to go somewhere else." Right. That's the answer. Did you talk to the chef? Did you talk to the owner? Did you say like, "Hey, what if I stay for two more months, like"? You know, what if the chef said, oh, dang it. I I'm s- I was just ready to promote you. We we're just ready to move yeah. you up. Yeah. We we're just ready to move you to sous chef. You're yes. doing a great job, but you're going to leave. So we'll find somebody else.
0: And this is, again, fear and anxiety. Uh, and these are things that we make up in our head. and oh, We're man, afraid to totally. say out loud. But at the same time, the amount of you made yourself vulnerable you you went from being putting him in a vulnerable place where although it's Daniel he could find somebody right like sure people gravitate to him but you gave him the respect of saying I'm not gonna put you in a position I'm gonna tell you now that I have intentions to do my own thing and I want to give you as much runway as possible yeah and I want to bring you into the, the, the narrative too because maybe it's with you or maybe I don't know like maybe you yeah, have I an mean, opportunity for me you know but yeah. but opening the dialogue making yourself vulnerable by giving him this information made him trust you more made him want to s- continue to see you succeed
1: yeah Neil, i mean it started early on i mean I, I had a i had a business manager at the time i had just come off of doing a national syndicated television show so the opportunities that were coming to me for endorsements was pretty crazy and i remember sitting down with danielle and this business manager and we were talking about it and danielle says he has a full-time job at cafe blue i don't think he has time to do that and i looked at my manager i was like then that's it we're not doing anything it's over I'm going to focus on Cafe Balut. I'm going to focus on working for Danielle. We'll come back to this at some point. At yeah. some point, that'll pay us off, but not now. And and I think, you know, I get frustrated when I see that happen in our profession where it's like, oh, I'm going to work for so-and-so, but now I'm consulting over here and I'm doing this over there and I'm doing that over there. It's like, yeah. listen, I get the side hustles, but at the end of the day, what are you teaching? What are you telling the person you're working for that you're only in, impo- you know, it's like, I just you're, don't get that it. You're
0: leveraging their brand for opportunity. Yeah right? Um, No, I totally get that. So I mean, I think now is actually a great time to take our first break to thank our sponsors. We'll be right back to start talking about how you've built what is today, Swanee. This podcast is brought to you by Mies, the culinary operating system for food professionals. As a chef and restaurant owner for the past 20 plus years, Mies founder and CEO, Josh Sharkey, was frustrated that only the financial and inventory software was available in the kitchen. And while those are important, they don't actually address the process of cooking, training, production, collaboration, and execution. Whether you're a chef, mixologist, consultant, operator, or generally if you manage a recipe intended for professional kitchens, Mies was built just for you. Organize, share, prep, and scale your recipes like never before plus get laser accurate food costs and nutritional analysis faster than you could ever imagine chefs that use Mies have seen on average 70% reduction in training time for new staff 20 to 30% less food waste and overproduction and an average of 30 to 50,000 reduction in annual cost of goods sold from their easy to use recipe engineering Part of the magic in Mies is a built-in database of thousands of ingredients that have been tested by Mies chefs and registered dietitians to ensure all the yield loss when you prep an ingredient as well as the unit conversions from volume to weight to pieces are built in, not to mention automated allergen tagging to ensure you have a consolidated view of allergens and nutrition. Get started by visiting getmeescom slash unstoppable. That's G-E-T-M-E-E-Z dot com forward slash unstoppable. And as a listener of Restaurant Unstoppable podcast, you can get two free months of invoice processing by signing up today. Revolutionize the way work is done in your kitchen with MES. We are back. And usually this is where we talk about how would you make your first vision? come to reality like what'd you do how'd you get the financing who'd you surround yourself with but i kind of feel like some of that was already laid out a little bit so yeah. you told daniel hey this is what i want to do you give him four years notice yeah um w- w- uh. at what point did your vision of spoon and stable start to come into fruition
1: so i had written a business plan uh which was originally called dorothy's which was named after my grandmother and uh i i was looking three geographical locations. I was looking at Southern California, I was looking at New York City, and I was looking at Minneapolis. All of those had ties to me personally and professionally. And so they were important to sort of scout all three. I spent a lot of time um, watching and, and looking for a place where I felt there was a need. Okay, and and that's a really important part of this business plan. I didn't go to, I didn't come to Minneapolis and think to myself like, oh, Minneapolis, I can open up a restaurant and it's going to work no matter where. No, I like I studied Minneapolis and I thought to myself like, what does it need that I believe it needs? And so I looked in all these different markets. I kept looking for spaces in these different markets, and I had a realtor named Carrie Charleston who. Knew what I was looking for, which was exposed brick. I wanted high ceilings. I wanted a lot of space. It did not need to be a restaurant beforehand. In fact, I'd prefer it was not a restaurant. And if you why come, why that? Uh, because I didn't want any. I didn't want any sort of like emotional history to it. Like, okay. oh, you took over my favorite restaurant that we got married in.
0: What are your thoughts about Turnkey and keeping it financially, like
1: within reach? I think it's great. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's just for my first one, I didn't want it. Got it. I mean, Belcore, my second one was a turn. Got it. Well, it wasn't Turnkey, but it was an existing restaurant. And so um she found this space, and it was an office building when mm-hmm. we walked into it and i, f- I f- spoon and stable, and I walked in where we're sitting in spoon was cubicles, okay. the kitchen was cubicles, okay. the front door was different where it is. Um, the wine cellar was their lobby. the bar was their boardroom
0: <laughs> so was so you opened in 2014 when is this in the journey
1: so i found I found this space in two thousand and thirteen okay think it was march 2013 i found the space we negotiated the lease i signed the papers no sorry i found the space in december we neg- and then we negotiated uh started to negotiate the lease in march i signed the lease um and got the keys to the space i want to say it was like early july and then we opened november that year Okay, that's but we had been turn. we yeah we had been building up. I mean, at this point, Danielle and his team were well aware of what was happening. Yeah, so I was going to Marcel, his CFO, and doing all of my pro formas with him. I was I was literally like, wow, sho- you know, I was showing them my business plan to say like, does this make sense? What do you think about that, dude? You know, all this dude, stuff. Dude,
0: what a wealth of like resource. Oh, it's crazy. And I think that this is a perfect example of why it's always better to take the high road. Yeah. Well, you took you chose to communicate. You chose to yeah. be open. You chose it to, to state expectation and desire. Yeah. And you, you were on the right team to make that happen. Right. So now you don't have to go off on your own and figure it out on your own.
1: And keep in mind, this took me three years. Like, the, yeah, we opened in 2014. I started this process in 2011. Wow. to so, find money. And to find a space. Well, that was,
0: like, and this is the, probably one of the weirdest, like most awkward things to discuss. Is how did you find the money? So one thing is obviously doing the work, getting the experience, mm-hmm. being something and somebody, some to invest it, worth of investing into. People don't. Invest in restaurants. They invest in people. Hundred percent. And you have developed these relationships. Now you have these these people, these mentors, these resources you can go to to help plan. Was it just Daniel, or did you have multiple investors? No, we
1: have know. multiple. Okay. I mean, we have uh, we have uh, over a dozen investors in the company. Got it. And the majority of them are local here in Minnesota. Who's the first person to to invest? Um a good question i don't remember the first person that signed my thought the, the reason why the i'm curious
0: because if it was daniel I
1: it was know. it wasn't so what ended up actually happened so they were the last one so what happened was is that my my dad had a lot of has a lot of connections here in minnesota too and a lot of friends and who have always said like let us know if gavin ever opens a restaurant you know which is very common okay and so what happens is is then you go to these people that say let me know when you open a restaurant and i'll invest and you give them the business plan and then they read, and they're like, eh, "No, we're not going to invest." Well, we got lucky. I mean, I don't remember how many meetings we had in that single day, but a, a handful of investors said yes to us that day—not sign the paper, but a, you know, a formal handshake—and yes, we will do it. There was one. I remember there was one investor we met with, and I think we met with he and his financial advisor. And I remember his financial advisor during the my presentation being like, "I don't think this is a good investment for you. Restaurants are typically not a good investment." And I kind of pushed back a little bit and said what I needed to say. I don't remember what I said, but I know I pushed back. And and they ultimately decided not to invest, which is perfectly fine. And he eats in our restaurants now a lot still. And every time I see him, he's like, damn it. (laughs) And I'm like, look, I'm like, "It's, it's... I mean, I remember meeting with one investor. I don't remember which one, but I remember thinking, knowing that that single person I was meeting had a... They were brilliant with numbers. And so the numbers pro forma page, I ripped out. And I gave him the booklet. And I remember him asking me, where's the number page? And I said, it's not about numbers. That's not what you're investing in. I'm not the stock market. We have no idea what the return's going to be. This is, I'm just telling you, this is the vision. This is what I want to do. This is what I want to achieve. These are my goals. And I genuinely believe that I can get there. Mm-hmm. So we were able to, to compile, get all of the investors together. And then what happened was, is I was actually at French Laundry training Team USA for the Bocuse Door. And I, I scheduled a meeting with Chef Keller um, and with his assistant. And his assistant said, are you leaving Cafe Belude? And I said, I am, but I, I need, it's going to come out tomorrow in the New York Times. And I don't want Chef to read the New York Times. I want him to hear it from me out of respect. And so I, I sat down with Chef and, and I said, Chef Keller, you know, I just want to let you know I'm leaving Cafe Belude. Danielle and I have talked about this for years and it's all on good terms. Now, listen. I'm 99.9% sure he knew all of this before I even sat on that table right. or sat on that in that chair with him. But it was really important for me to talk to him. And it was all about just that respect factor and just saying like, it's going to come out in the New York Times tomorrow. This is where I'm going. This is what I'm going to do. And Thomas said, <clears throat> you know, you've been great to us. You've taught us, you know, you, you're always pushing for Boku's door. <clears throat> he said, I think we, you know, Danielle and myself and a few other chefs would like to, to come in and be a part of an investment group with you if that's possible. He said, do you, "Do you need do you need extra funds for it?" And I said, "I don't because it's closed." But of course, we'll figure it, we'll figure it out. We'll make it happen. Got it.
0: I mean, just goes to show the, the the power of intentionality and surrounding yourself with the right people, and then giving before expecting to get. Yeah. And I think we can like sum up that part of your story. Just the, yeah, like you 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 were up to this point of your, of your story, just giving, giving, giving your interest, your curiosity, and. In doing work for others. When you do that, when you give first, the universe provides. Yep. You know, it came back. What was your vision? You said that you weren't selling people on the numbers. You were selling them on the vision. Here's what you're trying to do. What was it that you were, you know, what was the pitch? What was the vision?
1: Yeah, I mean, much of what Spoon is. I mean, it was, you know, originally the restaurant was going to be called Merchants. It wasn't going to be called Spoon and Stable. And then and then that changed a month before we opened and we changed the restaurant name. Um, but the, the idea and the intention of Spoon has always been, to create an To create a restaurant space that delivers both in cuisine but really in hospitality, we focus a lot on hospitality and what you give to people uh, to your point, giving you know and 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 listening listening to people and making sure they 're seen and heard and understanding where they are and sort of meet them at this at this place where they are and some people some tables you 're going to have to approach differently than other tables, and that 's okay you know be that, but like then be dedicated to it you mm-hmm. know um. I I, I spent my eight years of working in New York, I cooked for a lot of people, a lot of the same people for a long time, okay? There are some really amazing, amazing human beings who the world knows who I cooked for a thousand times or more. And their success is beyond what I could ever dream or imagine. And when I would have conversations with them, I was always taken aback by both their, their curiosity, um... Their intentionality, uh, and and how how they just sort of presented who they were, and I and I I was always really inspired by that. And I thought to myself, we need to build a restaurant that thinks about hospitality in a different way um, than than what we always think about. We got to take this idea of transaction out of it. I went to visit Danielle's parents. My God, that was probably in two thousand and nine. I was not with Danielle. I had to go get all of my equipment out of the out of my storage in France and move it to his parents' barn in just outside of Lyon. And he, his parents were incredible. Okay, and his dad comes out and says, um, <clears throat> "I need to make sure that uh, you're well taken care of. Would you like an espresso?" I said, "Sure." So we have an espresso. We have a little bit of uh, a little pastry. He says, "Maybe you should stay for lunch." So we stay for lunch, and. I'm sitting at this table, man, and I'm eating lunch with Danielle's mom and dad, okay? Only speaking in French. We're now drinking a bottle of wine that his dad brought out from the cellar, and we're we're eating the sausage that his father made, the saucisson sec and the saucisson de lyon And his mom has a leg of lamb in the oven. And I'm looking around, and there's, like in any house, pictures of their kids all over the wall. And Danielle, as a little chef, as a young chef, as a young cook... First time he's gotten four stars in the New York Times. Like I, I saw his world and his rise to where he was in front of me, documented in, through his parents' eyes and photos. And then I realized the table I'm sitting at was the original Café Bleu built in 1901 by his great grandparents. Whoa! It dude. just happens to be their house now. That's and wild. it fucking blew me away, man. I mean, I left that place like, whoa.
0: Yeah, and well, like. What do do you mean by what? What were you feeling? What was going through your mind?
1: I understood hospitality. I really understood what it meant to unapologetically take care of somebody with the intention of getting nothing in return. And that is hospitality.
0: Yes, dude. I, I like to say hospitality is inconveniencing yourself for the convenience of somebody else. That's right. And the more inconvenient it is for you, the yeah. more you feel like this is going to be hard, the more, hospita- or, yeah. the more, hospitable. The more hospitable. you're yep. being. thank you. Uh, you. You wrote on your website. Our heart is our people.
1: Yeah,
0: I'm feeling when you think of heart, you think of hospitality. Yeah. What do you mean by our heart is our people?
1: Well, I mean, I think we all have this intention to want to work and be in, want to work, eat, drink, be surrounded by people that do care and do have like an, a, a heart to care for each other and for, for the people that are there. <clears throat> and when, when, when you think of it as only transactional and you don't really like put all of your effort into taking care of not only your team, but also the guests. See, here's the thing that's interesting, like in our business, right? So yesterday's mother's day, man. I don't know. I think we probably cooked for a thousand people yeah, in all of our so restaurants, for right? I
0: the day the day after you must be beat, <laughs> right? I mean, it was
1: crazy, but I mean, I was off, I was off. I was, I was, cel- I was celebrating, you know, mother's day with, with my family. And, and, you know, I'll tell you what's, what's amazing is like you cook for a thousand people in a day. And if you don't know the cook to your left and the right, or the server or the bartender or the host or the dishwasher. And you're not giving them your heart either. It's a tough place to be and and you know our our business has gotten a lot of shit lately for for what's happened in our business and and it's hard for people to understand um, what it is and why we do it and there's always talk about money and there's talk about this all these other things and it's like at the end of the day like you get into this business because for a lot of people like this is it right? This is where you belong. This is where you feel the most welcomed and where you feel the most seen and the most heard. And it doesn't matter, you know, what what others say about you and who you are. Like if your heart is in it and if the people that you surround yourself with have that same genuine care for others, you're going to take on the world and you'll surprise people how much love can change people.
0: Yeah. And I mean, the more we're studying the heart too. Um, yeah. the, the heart is an organ I'm becoming so incredibly just fascinated by because there's a lot of evidence. I mean, the heart you're, when you start in your mother's womb, it's, it's your the, the heartbeat is the first thing before your brain develops. So there's yep. a lot of evidence that suggests our heart is more than just an organ that pumps blood. Yeah. There's a cl- there's a cluster of nerves in our heart that communicates and tells our brain what to do, and that we radiate and life. I mean, I mean, life is your heart. I mean, it starts there. It sparks there. You know, it's crazy. So I think there's a lot of truth. So I was curious, you know, what what that meant to you. And I think that that just you spelled it out perfectly right there. The power of just people and and, you know, what is hospitality? Um, It sounds like up to this point, like you've you've almost like never really had a major hurdle or failure. Oh you I know. have. So,
1: I have, for sure. I so mean, I
0: wanna get those yeah. things out because I feel like that's where we learn the most. So where yeah. were those failures for you?
1: Yeah, I mean I, I mean one that stands out the most was when I was cooking for Team USA in the Boku store, it was two thousand and seven that I had represented the United States. And you know, I had never really done cooking competitions before. And so um, I had I, I tried out for Team USA and I got into the semifinals and I think we were three of us in the semifinals. And the two other people that I were competing against had competed in the U.S. version of this before, and one of them had gotten second. So I was fairly convinced that I was like not going to win this thing, right? I mean, if you get second one year, the likelihood right. of you getting first next year is pretty high. <clears throat> well, we won. Wow. And we, we go to represent the United States, and I was, I was on a... I w- I'd, I'd, made the, I'd made the mistake of, of um, living in that moment too long, and not being like, okay, now I've lived in it. I want it. I felt it. It's great. Now it's over. (laughs) Move on. And you know, I put myself in debt. I trained hard, but I didn't train hard enough. Um, I just didn't do what I needed to do to be the best that I could be on that stage. And I don't think I I... I know I did not expect it to be as hard as it was. I get to France. I compete. I get 14th place, which I think may have been one of the worst the U.S. have ever placed. It was a total failure. I mean, I left that stadium in, in just dismay that like it was the biggest failure of my culinary career. My profession, for sure, was the biggest failure of my life. Um, and, and, and what I did is I left that stadium and I said, it's never going to happen again. Do
0: you see this as a business failure? Are these business moves for you?
1: No, no, that was a personal failure. Okay. Yeah, I mean, because there, no, there was no business to be had. I mean, I was working for the hotel.
0: I mean, your personal brand is a business in a sense. Yeah,
1: but not then. Right. I mean, there's no social media, so nobody even knew about it. You know, it's just like there was no way. I mean, we have social media now, and it's hard for right. people to know Poku stories. Um, <clears throat> so there, there, wasn't, there wasn't any of that. It was just really a personal failure. Got it. And, and so I left that being like, this just can't happen again.
0: Got it. And what is this exactly?
1: We can't, go, we can't go to the competition underfunded. Yeah. We've got to go into it funded correctly. We've got to go into it with a team of people. I mean, I would call X candidates from Team USA and ask, like, how did they do it? What did they do? And some would talk to me and some wouldn't. Sounds like you're also kind of
0: riding the wave from the previous win. And you thought that maybe you could ride that wave into the next one.
1: Well, I didn't even know what the next one was. Yeah. You know, and that was the problem is, is that we had the history. We had people who had done the competition who could come out and say, "Hey, I want to give you some advice." This, this is what you're going to walk into, and you know now we have that. We have a whole team of people uh, that I help coordinate with that sits down with these candidates when they when they win the, the opportunity to, to represent the U.S. to be like, "Hey, listen, in October you're going to break down and you're going to say this is the worst thing you've ever done, but don't worry, you're almost there. <laughs> yeah. Like you're going to get it. Like when that when that little voice in your head tells you to stop, just keep going." Mm. Just keep pushing. In
0: terms of your business, I'm curious. Anything that you know today as far as people trying to replicate the same su- success you've had in business? Um, you've had amazing people, amazing mentors in mm-hmm. your corner, coaching you, steering you, I'm sure. Uh, but if there's one thing that you did in terms of your business that knowing what you know today, after since 2008, 24 years or more, 25 years mm-hmm. as, a, as an owner, what war or no, sorry, it's
1: 2014. Yeah. 2014. Yeah. Sorry. Eight years. Uh, nine,
0: yeah. Eight years as an owner. What do you know now as an owner that you just, that you had to learn the hard way?
1: I think the reality is, is you have to understand that every deal is different. They all fall differently. They're like snowflakes. Nothing is the same. And so what I often see is I get <clears throat> chefs or, or, or business owners or cooks who, Want to open up their own restaurant or whatever, whatever it might be, and they're looking for this like golden nugget of advice that's going to change um, the way that they think about opening a restaurant. And the reality is, is like that golden nugget lives in a lot of different places, and you're going to find 50, <laughs> 50 different pieces, and it's different for everyone, and it's different for everybody. Yes, and dude. once you find, once you find the the combination of what that golden nugget looks like, you're going to know it. Mm. But my deal. With my company doesn't mean that the deal for you and your company should be the same or look the same. When you it, say
0: deal, what do you mean?
1: Like to deal with the investors or deal with a lease or you know what, whatever the whatever that is. You know, like for us, we have investors, we lease our spaces. You have to have a payback structure. Like there's all of those economics that have to happen, and I think that you have to you have to be very open to sitting down with somebody who's going to help partner with you on this and feel that you can say to them, hey, I don't understand what you're saying. Like when you say you want, I'm going to give it up. I'm going to make it up. Let's say your investment is $5 million and the investor says, okay, I'm going to invest $5 million in your restaurant. You're going to own 10% of the restaurant and you got to pay me back with a 10% interest. Once you pay me back with a 10% interest, your 10% goes to 49%. Ask yourself one question: Are you ready to be the minority for the rest of your life in that business? No. After paying all that back, no. Like, take away the fact that yes, you might have that opportunity to say you're an owner, yeah, which is everything you've worked towards. But knowing that you could get ousted at any second, is that worth it? Right. And that's that's a yeah. that's a hard pill and to swallow. When you man. want it when you have those
0: blinders on yeah. when it's literally a yes away. And you can sign the deal, you can start building your vision, that's a hard yes
1: to yep. walk away from. Yep. And, and and there's the opposite of that, which is sometimes you're asking for too much. You walk in, you say, Hey, I need five million bucks, I want to be a ninety percent owner. Listen, it doesn't matter who you worked for, it doesn't matter how much knowledge you have, you're a risk. Mm. A restaurant is a risk to invest in. And and it it's 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 not a guarantee. I mean, it took me three over three years to not only find Spoon and Stable, but to acquire the funds to build this restaurant.
0: Under the right conditions.
1: Yeah, under really, really incredible conditions. Yeah. And so it's really, it's not like overnight, oh my God, I found this pot of gold and now I'm gonna open this restaurant. That's it. It's like, it's hard. You gotta work for it. Yeah.
0: Paint the picture of what Soignet is today.
1: Sure. So right now we have a holding company, so it's called Soignet Holdings. And so Soignet owns um, all different LLCs. So Spoon and Stable is an LLC. Demi Restaurant is a separate LLC. Uh, and then we have um, Mara and Swanya, or Mara and Soka Cafe, which run under the consulting firm Swanya Consulting. I was going to ask
0: if those were management deals. Yep.
1: Okay. Yeah, licensing. Yep.
0: So, so keep going.
1: And then uh, and then we have the Belcour Cooks brand, which we actually now we've actually gone in on that together. We're partners on those brands now. So prior to uh, today, basically, or actually last week, they were they were also licensing deals. But we're now partners in that brand as well so um started out as a pop-up it kind of worked it really worked and so we, we created that and then we have a company called KZ provisioning which is a, a partnership deal between myself and andrew Zimran. uh we each own 50 percent of that company and we cook for athletes so we're behind the scenes we're behind the scenes we cook for the uh, minnesota wild the timberwolves and the lynx And we're looking to grow that brand as well. So Swanee is a big umbrella. And then you have the the other catering companies. Yep, Spoon Thief Catering, which is separate. Got it. And
0: on top of all this, you have two nonprofits. Yes. That you haven't mentioned.
1: Mentor and then Heart of the House. Yeah, man, you got a lot going
0: on. Yeah, a lot lot has happened since two thousand and
1: fourteen. Yeah, it's crazy.
0: So, where, like, if we have like just ten minutes to freestyle left together, yeah, you tell me what you want. What what information you want to relay in terms of what you've built? Because I mean, we that's a lot to unpackage. Yeah. Um. I'm willing to go longer, but I want to respect your time. Yeah. So I mean, where do you, do you think you grew as a restaurant tour the most in this past what whatever years it's
1: been? Um. Years. Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. It's a tough one to answer singular, but I, I'd say that the it is very very difficult to go from one restaurant to two. It is easier to go from two to three, four to five, five to six in businesses. What makes it hard going from one to two? You don't have any infrastructure. You know, if you're the chef owner of, a, of, of restaurant A, the second you need restaurant B, you now need a chef for A and you need a chef for B. And then you're the chef that oversees A and B. You need a GM for one, a GM for two, and then you need somebody to see, oversee that GM for two. And it can be you as the chef for a while until it can't be. Yeah. How'd it feel to be the only chef for a while? Yeah. I mean, it's always, it always feels great. You know I mean? It's awesome. But the thing is, is like, I knew that that wasn't going to last a really long time because I didn't want it to, um, you know, again, like I had gone from being the chef at Cafe Balloude in New York city to the chef of Cafe Balloude in New York city, Toronto and Palm beach. And so I was already practicing. I was already working on this exercise of what does it look like to manage restaurants? I mean, listen, I'm lucky. They're in five blocks, right? This was, I mean, I was going to Toronto every other weekend. I was going to Palm Beach every other weekend. So it was a completely different way to manage when you're getting on a plane and going somewhere, which I didn't hate that, you know. So if that was
0: the biggest challenge for you or one of the biggest challenges for you was from one to two, how did you overcome that challenge? What was the tipping point for you?
1: Well, a lot of it is you kind of have to, all of it is actually you have to understand financially what that means. Because it changes the way your finances are. I mean, you can look at one restaurant and say, wow, this restaurant makes a lot a lot of money as it is. Let's just keep it as it is. Or do we fold some of that profit into another restaurant and build another one, and you're sort of splitting it off a little bit, right? And a lot of the times, and a lot of people will say this, and I've heard that on interviews countless times, is chefs will open up more restaurants because like, they have the team to do it. It's like the team's either going to leave me and open their own, or go work for a competitor, yeah. or we can open more.
0: Yeah, I think that is that I, that approach that you just described. I think is like the, the the secret right there. Two things determine growth: cash flow and people. Yep. When you have the people, and they're either going to go someplace else, or you're going to be that you're going to be that opportunity for them. Mm-hmm. That's when that's what determines the next thing. Yep. Um, and you obviously need the cash flow there to make it happen. Yep. Um, when you so what what changed when you went from one restaurant? to now what is it three yeah so
1: three restaurants three bakeries a cafe
0: got it um how how has your evolution looked because you're not in the kitchen every are you in the kitchen every day you weren't yesterday
1: uh i wasn't yesterday i was off yesterday i mean i i I still take two days off a week for the most part physically i'm not here two days Mm -hmm. um we have three boys 13 11 and almost one year old uh so it's wild Mm -hmm. (laughs) a lot of work um but yeah, I mean, am I in the kitchen the days that I'm here? I'm in the kitchen. I'm not necessarily prepping and cooking every single day. I mean, I see a lot of my responsibility now is, um, you know, understanding the growth of where we are today, but I'm sort of like looking ahead too. And I mean, we have a new bakery that's supposed to open up this week, right? So it's like now my whole week is do we have everything that we need to get that open? Is the team set up? Are they all in place? Is the food getting ordered? You know, what are we doing to check all those boxes? And there's a director of operations who I work with and Chris, our executive chef, who I work with, who also look at those things with us. Um, So a lot of it is just sort of like managing sometimes from a 30,000-foot level. But I will tell you that most nights that I am here, I am walking between Spoon and Demi and Mara and with the team and plating talking to the guests and in the dining rooms and i hear it's like the most common thing i hear from the guests which is we're always so impressed that you're here it's like where else would i be <laughs> i mean it's like you should want to be here yeah it's, it's like no i want to be like be i it. like i love to be here and i want to see you and i yeah. know it's like i know you're here we've been cooking for you for eight years yeah. like i'm happy to see you in the restaurant
0: one thing that i do really like about what you got going on here that's unique to you and your story that i'm picking up on is that you have a lot of different models mm-hmm. so yeah. you're not just a, like a soul you know Proprietor of a restaurant, you have partnerships where you know there's you had a pop up that evolved into yeah. something that is now a partnership. You have licensing deals. When, like, how do you approach new projects? How do you decide what type of model that restaurant's going to become, or does it just yeah. happen naturally?
1: Uh, some of it happens less naturally and more told, like, this is the deal. Um, some of it is a natural evolution. Uh, some of it is what we propose as well because we don't know. The right or the wrong way, Um, but a lot of it is first asking yourself, why do you want to do this? Why say yes to this project? Because here's the one piece of advice that I would say is really important. You open up one restaurant; it's successful. Okay, you're going to have opportunity after opportunity after opportunity of people coming in and be like, "Oh, I want you to do this," or "I want you to do that," and. Your concept would be great in this stadium or in this arena or whatever. And you want to say yes to everything because your entire life has led to this moment This is what it's all about. Okay? Don't worry about saying yes. Worry about answering why. Mm. Because if you say no, right when you say no, there's going to be another opportunity that's going to walk through the door and say, I got another opportunity yes. for Yes.
0: And everything you say yes to is something else you're saying you no. Know, so 100%. You know. so, so.
1: so now I bring my team through it. So I have an executive team of people. There's five of us. So when we get offered an opportunity and they say, oh, we want you to look at X restaurant space. We all go. What are filters are you putting it through? I, first, I want them to walk away and say like, can you see this vision? Can you understand what it is that we can do here? And I want them to understand like what I see. Mm-hmm. Because again, to your point, it's cash flow and people. I can walk into the room of our office at any time and say, hey, we're going to open up a restaurant in this city, this city, this city, or here and whatever. But I need some, I need buy-in from them to be like, why are we doing this, chef? What is the purpose behind the yes on this one? So now I walk them through the process and it's it's a fascinating process. It's great for me too because I think I actually end up reflecting a little bit more about what it is that we're doing and if, and if I want to say yes to things. And we've, I mean, we've had a handful of opportunities this year that we've put through all these filters of why and at the end of it, we say it just doesn't work out. It doesn't look like it's going to make sense for us.
0: Mm. Um, what about partnerships? You have multiple partnerships and yep. I think that... I personally think that if you want to be the best today, you can't do it alone. Yeah. The the, the day of being a solo restaurateur, I think it's the, those are times past. Um, multiple partners. What have you learned about partnerships, and what what is important to you in a
1: partnership? Well, I mean, partnership is a lot. First of all, you have to understand that, that it is a partnership. That it is a partnership, and there is business associated with it. So it's not it's not very personal, you know, uh, when it comes down to it. Your partner has an expectation like you have an expectation. Be clear about those expectations. Be clear about the boundaries of the partnership. And understand what growth looks like beyond that. You know, I think often... I mean, look, I started to work for... This is always fascinating to me. You know, Danielle opened up Restaurant Danielle when he was like 38 or 40 years old or something like that. Imagine doing that today you know, being 40. I mean, we're just stuck in this cycle of like, we need to get partners. We need to open a restaurant. I need to do it by the time I'm 30 years old. You know, it's like, we just want to do it so much earlier. I mean, I opened Spoon when I was 35 and he's always like, that's the good age. 35 is a good age. I'm like, okay, great. Um, Because you learn a lot more. You see a lot more and you understand how to manage partnerships. When I was in charge of Cafe Balud, Toronto, New York and Palm Beach, I had different partners in three cities that I was managing for Danielle, right? And so I would go to Toronto and I would have to manage that relationship on his behalf. I'd go to Palm Beach, I would manage that relationship on his behalf. And I would learn quickly the difference of managing those relationships and those partnerships and how important it was to get the most out of that and being respectful and understanding, look, it's a business, you know, and, and that doesn't mean you can't have fun. It doesn't so, mean you can't yeah, do So
0: how do you draw those lines and recognizing mm-hmm. this is a partnership, this is a transaction, there's mm-hmm. a business side of this. Yep. How do you approach that? How do you draw those lines in the sand?
1: I think a lot of it is you got to reach into your gut. What's your gut feeling? When you meet with a future partner, is this a person that you want to do business with? Are you excited to know that for the next 20 years of your life, you could do business with this person? You know, and what does that look like, and how does that feel? Uh, you know, I'm super, super lucky. I mean, my partners for Spoon—they're awesome. You Did know, you had
0: partners from day one.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were all investors and partners from day one. All, all, all of them. So,
0: were they any operating partners? Or were you the sole operating partner?
1: I'm the sole operating Got partner. It. Yep. And so they're all behind the scenes investors. Um, but again, that was a very, very clear defining moment when we put our partnership agreement together with all of them that we that i would be the operating partner and you know i'll give you an example one of the things that we agreed on which is like so little but very very important to me was that when we go to eat in our restaurants we're not comped i'm not comped my partners are not comped so i was here the other night with i was out out with some friends and they said oh let's go grab a drink at spoon and some bites i said sure so we came here and i was leaving we were about to leave and so i walked up to my the, one of the servers i said hey just grab, give me the bill and throw it on my on my card and he i came back out of the bathroom he says chef i didn't know you don't we don't comp you right and i said no never and he says why is that and i said it's integrity i said i can't expect to be comped and then expect to comp my 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 investors if we always st- if we're expecting to make sure that the financials are on the up and up and that we trust each other so, it's like that's a very little boundary, but it's very important because it was like set from day one. It's a discipline. And it's just like, this is what we
0: do. Yeah, this is, and that standard applies to us all. Doesn't matter who yeah. you are. Yeah, I love that. Um, what haven't we talked about up to this point? I mean, I could continue to talk to you, but I do want to respect your time, man. Uh, what haven't we talked about that you think we need to talk about before moving on to the speed round? I don't know. I think we did pretty good. Yeah, I mean, you covered a lot. That was a lot. Uh, I do want to echo the mission statement to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. So on this, this idea of transformation, where the industry is now, where we're headed, mm-hmm. what are you doing intentionally to transform yourself and your business to, to evolve, to be better?
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, it's changed a, a lot um, from when I started to, to when I opened Spoon to where it is today. I mean, I think for me, a lot of the transformation and a lot of the... Idea of inspiration. I lean a lot into mentorship. You know, how do we look at the people who are working with us on a daily basis, who are very young and sort of looking up into this world? Like, what do I do? How do I get there? Um, and and really focusing on their growth and how they do end up getting there. Um, I think it's. I love social media for what it is. I hate that it takes away curiosity. Um, I think it's really really tough on us. I think it's I think it's easy for us to look on social and say, Oh, what's Renee doing at Noma, you know, and then I'll get inspired. It's like, yeah, but what about reading the book? What is like, what's the purpose behind that dish? And so that, that part, that part I struggle with a little bit. And I, I just want to make sure that the team is like thoughtful when they think about what it is that they want to do.
0: I'm not being rude. I'm looking at my phone to look up the name of a book called the shallows by Nicholas Carr. And it talks about the impact that technology is having on us. A lot of narrative out there of, People in my space, other podcasters are sharing the importance of social media and how yeah. to do social media and all yeah. this stuff. We never talk about the bad side. Right. And it's unprecedented. This thing, social media, it's a new thing. We don't have social norms associated with how to handle it. Right. We haven't gotten that far yet. It's only 10 years old. Yep. You know, like what are we, what are we doing? Yep. Right. And they talk about the importance of just shutting everything. We are bombarded yeah. by information today. It's unprecedented. And Sometimes you need to go internal. Yeah. Sometimes you need to shut everything off and just drive in the car with nothing go- but your thoughts. Yep. Right. And that's where the creativity starts to come. Yep. Is that what is that with what you're saying? Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah it's people always ask me like, Oh, when do you think about dishes? I'm like when I'm in the shower. Right. Or when I'm in my car. Yeah. You know, but even the car is hard because now your phone is attached to your car.
0: So along that vein of inspiring power transform, what do you what is
1: the message? I mean, the message really is to stay curious. Stay curious and and find a mentor. Find somebody who wants to help. See you into what is next for you, and give them everything you have. You know, and 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 require require the the same from them to give it back to you. Yeah,
0: there was one more thing that I was hoping would come out of today's conversation before we go to the speed round. Um, Heart of the House Foundation, yeah, a nonprofit organization created to sustain the growth, health, and prosperity of Swanee Hospitality family now into the future. What do you, exactly what is that?
1: Yeah, so we started, so Allison Arth, who's a friend of mine and a colleague, we started this organization right five days after COVID hits, and we saw everything kind of come to an end. And I, I remember seeing something or reading something where Danny Meyer was selling gift cards, and then he was giving 100% of the profit of the gift cards to a nonprofit he created, which was going to help his team. So I called a friend of mine who was a lawyer in New York and I was like, Hey, I saw this thing that Danny did. I want to learn about it. Do you have, do you know anything? I want to create this nonprofit. He's like, Oh yeah, I created it for Danny. He's like, I can do it for you. I was like, great. And literally the next day the nonprofit was formed. It was done.
0: Pandemic's gone. Nonprofits still there. Still there.
1: Yeah. So the intention is to really find how to, you know, there's a lot of reasons why people need a lift in life, you know? And uh, it doesn't always have to necessarily be a public ask and it doesn't have to always be a GoFundMe me or whatever the Avenue is. And sometimes people just need like just that little bump to get them through the month. And if that's what heart of the house can do, then that's what it's going to do. If there's a, um, there's a great bank locally called bell bank here who I work a lot with and they do this pay it forward program. So they give each of their employee employees I think they gave us $5,000 and you, you literally pay that forward. You can do pay it forward to one person or two people. So let's say you have a car and you get into a car accident. Now you don't have a car and you can't get to work. I can pay it forward and give you five, gift you this $5,000 yeah. to buy a car. And I just love that. I think that there's a responsibility that we have uh, to just sort of teach that side of our business. So is this
0: just like a uh, an account that's sitting collecting money over time? Yep. To basically be there to so when somebody needs,
1: they apply for it, and then there's okay. a board of directors who then research uh, their application and then they approve it, or sometimes they don't approve it. Sometimes so is it a like,
0: percentage of total profit <clears throat> from all the assets, or how does that nope, work? No,
1: people don't people donate to okay. it. Yep. So we haven't had a lot of donations because COVID's over, right. and obviously when we first opened. The donation line it went gangbusters and we we raised a ton of money, um, and we gave away I think almost north of three hundred thousand dollars. Wow! Yeah, I mean when I when
0: I when I saw this I was thinking about just conscious capitalism. Yeah, That's weird. Right, I, I believe in capitalism. Yeah, I believe that if if there is going to be change, we don't need more rules and regulations and government to come in and force it. I don't think people like being forced to do things. I think that we can make a change by changing culture, a collective culture, instilling values, and making an example of people like you of like, this is what you can, you want to attract onto yourself the best? Be a reason to attract onto like and and care about your people. And doing good is good business. And the more that people think like this, the more that people intentionally put resources aside just to be there, just to help, just yeah. to grow. That's how we're going to transform the industry. Yeah. I do think that if we transform the industry, we'll transform the world. Yeah. This is the third largest industry. Yeah. And we have more influencers in this industry than any other industry. We can change shit, man. Yeah. Um, this has been a lot of fun. We're going to take awesome. one more quick break to thank the sponsors. We'll be right back to bus out a speed round. This episode is brought to you by One Huddle. One Huddle is a coaching and development platform using quick burst mobile games to more quickly and effectively level up and fire up your workforce. One Huddle provides a mobile first approach to preparing the modern worker, a library of 3000 plus quick burst skill games and the option to instantly create personalized content. One Huddle is changing the way restaurants develop their workers by transforming the traditional manuals in videos into deceptively simple, highly effective mobile games proven to level up workers quickly. Let's get into some of the facts. So with one huddle, you can onboard employees 45% faster than traditional methods. And there's actually a study done by the University of South Florida that has proven you can train your employees 45% faster using games on one huddle versus traditional micro learning and video based learning. This new and improved way to educate your staff will translate into increased sales because you're creating more consistency with the guest experience, both front and back of house, i.e. menu development, menu memorizing, POS, limited time offers, food costing, things like this, you're looking at a more engaged worker too because They're in competition with themselves and the entire organization. This stuff is powerful. Right now, head to www.restaurantunstoppable.com/slash-one like the number one in huddle, like a football huddle. And if you use that link, you can get ninety days access to One Huddle's game shop, which includes three thousand plus on-demand skill games on everything from bartending to serve safe to the latest Amazon best-selling books and so much more. Again, that's restaurantunstoppable.com slash one huddle. And you have to use that link. This is a cost per acquisition agreement, meaning we get paid per lead that goes through that link. So if you are finding value in this podcast and you want to support, please use this link. And it's, it's a testament to how much we believe in one huddle that we're willing to do this. So thank you in advance. Recently on the show, you've been hearing it come up often Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. recipe costing cards guidance in your books for accounting cash control sales forecasting with accuracy checklist budgeting for the entire year scheduling for profit more butts and seats and that's not it P. that's rsp for restaurant systems pro restaurant slash rsp we're back and the first question i have for you is what is your it factor a habit trait characteristic you believe most contributes to your success
1: oh my it factor probably discipline what is your biggest weakness hmm. probably ego how are you overcoming that
0: I, um, I did not pick up on an ego by the way,
1: man. So no. Well, away. I were, I were, I work a lot on that, but I, th- I think that we're all sort of, I think that we all have that ghost of an ego, right? That's I think, I think it's normal for us to want and need an acceptance, um, that we don't truly need. I'll give you an example. My son, my middle son got hurt playing hockey on Saturday. Okay. Got crashed into the boards, hard hit back was sore. He was down on the ice for a while. All those roommate, all those teammates came and helped him packed his bag up <clears throat> brought it to the car i said juju you okay is your back okay he says yeah it's all right dad i think it's okay and we were talking and it's back up better and better and he said it really he's like it's really amazing that so many other people care about me i said but i care about you mom cares about you." He says, i know but i just didn't realize that my teammates all cared about me so much and i think that's a really beautiful thing when you mm-hmm. see other people's care when you see other people care about you i think it becomes damaging when that turns into an ego thing because you need them to care about right. you
0: so that's so, where you were at one exactly. point. How did you get over that?
1: Uh, I think a lot of it just kind of came through out of time of humility and just sort of like taking a step back and recognizing that I am not defined by what is said on the phone or in the newspaper or whatever. But the definition of who I am, I know who that is. Mm. And I have to work, I have to continue to work towards that and, and, and fulfill what is right for me and who I am and not for others.
0: What is one question you ask or thing you look for when you're growing your team?
1: Uh, I mean, the number one question is why. It's always why. And what are you looking for? Why, why do it and then, and then, and then break down, uh, you said it earlier, if we say yes to that, what are we saying no to? Right. And that's a really, dude, that's so important because right. it is 100% the truth. Right. And it's
0: weird because in your career, I think when you start, you say yes to almost everything. And then eventually, you have to get selective with your yeses as you figure out where you're headed. But, um, man, I'm tempted to keep on going with you, but I want to respect your time. Next question. What's your biggest challenge today?
1: Um, I'd say the biggest challenge probably is continuing to manage uh, all of the different companies, as you mentioned earlier, all the different partnerships, you know, that's that's the biggest challenge is just continuing to manage it at a, at a level that I expect us to be at. How are you overcoming it? Uh, I don't know if I'm overcoming it. I'd, I'd say that I continue to work at it and that work really comes down to, you know, me taking time and, and and talking to the team. I mean, I literally had a conversation before we sat down today with one of my colleagues was like, I want us to self-audit this portion of our business right now. Just look at what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, you know, what are we spending too much on? What are we spending not enough on? And like, you know, what are what are those? Like, let's just take a look and like, what are we saying? She, she said the best thing. She says, I'm gonna look and see what I'm spending too much time on as well. I'm like, perfect. Yeah. Right? And it's it, part of part of it is that. I mean, and, and she and I were talking about it. It's like, you get into this mood and you get into this groove of like doing the same thing over and over again. And you don't stop. Because it's like, that's what you do. And yep. this is what today is. That's what tomorrow's gonna habit be. And it's just habit. It's yeah. like, it's great, but like... You know, it happened to me today. I mean, today's day is crazy for me. I mean, it's just like I'm leaving for New York tomorrow, so, as I mentioned. So it's like my day today is just like back to back insanity. And I almost skipped going to the gym this morning, but I'm like, I need it. Right. It's like if I and don't. that's the discipline. Yeah. It's I was like curious. I just layers don't layers give that. myself that. It's I,
0: hard to have that
1: discipline. Yeah. But I do that four days a week. I mean, that is my discipline. Yeah. Um, great stuff, man. Uh,
0: what is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? Oh, something that's. Common within the four walls of your businesses, but not common throughout the industry.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I would say one of the things we talk a lot about is don't be afraid to give things away. You know, like if just because so let's say you're eating at this table and I am not your server and I walk past your table and I hear you say, Dang, we should have ordered those potatoes, that look good. Go get them the potatoes.
0: Yeah. Yep. They want both, but they have to just, choose. Just get, get it. Just give it to them. Right. Right? I and even
1: that. if you're not their server, more even more powerful. Got it. Uh, so you do comp sometimes. Oh, yeah, yeah we do. <laughs> we do. Um,
0: what is one uncommon core value, a belief, a conduct, a, a, a way to be a behavior you teach your team?
1: Uh, I mean, we talk a lot and extensively. I mean, we always talk about vulnerability. You know, we, we, we sort of try to break down this intention. And of, you've shown
0: it in your story, too, man.
1: Yeah, I mean, we, you know, I, I, mean, I say this to my team all the time. It's funny. I'll, I'll say to them, I don't care the hours that you work. I don't care if you work in the restaurants. I mean, if especially the executive team, if you work in the restaurant or you work in the office, if you work at home, you understand what the job has to be done. You you get it. And and I think what it's what I've learned is is that 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 has taught people to really have more awareness about where they need to be when they need to be there. Which again gets me back to like this self auditing. Like, hey, maybe I don't need maybe it's better off that I'm not in the office today because there's nothing really going on that needs me there, but I need to be at the photo shoot tomorrow night at 6 PM or whatever it might be, you know? And I, and I think that I like, I like to think that we, 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 we teach each other that and we teach each other where we need to be. We have a lot of trust for one another. Um, and that's important. Huge. Oh man, it's everything. You need
0: it. Uh, what is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or
1: restaurant owner? I mean the 11 rings from Phil Jackson is one of my favorites. Yeah.
0: That's the, I think the third time that one's been recommended on the show. I really? have not read it yet, oh, man, but it's so good. I got a long ride to New Hampshire. Maybe I'll get, be able to squeeze it in. Um, next question. What is one thing you feel tours don't do
1: well enough or often enough? Um, I don't think we, well, the pandemic has helped, but up until then, we never were good at sharing with each other our failures and or our successes. We allowed other people to share them for us. You know, it's we allowed others to write about it or to talk about it, but we didn't share it ourselves. I mean, I think the pandemic really pulled that layer back, man. Where they were like, "Hey,"
0: you alluded to some failure earlier, like some some criticism you're getting recently, and I I didn't.
1: Oh, I don't know about recent, but like when I opened Spoon, oh. I mean, it was like everybody loved us, but one article, one one writer just hated our restaurant. Oh, really? And that's fine. It's all good. I mean, it's it 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 again like to me that's not it's that's not the defining yeah. end all be all right but like when you live in new york for as long as i lived in new york like the new york times is a very defining end yeah. all be all so you sort of like end up living by that all the time but yeah. I, you know i think that restaurant tours we just have to do better at sort of sharing what those ups and downs are we have to do a better job at sharing what it means when other restaurants open up near us i'm in that right now i've got a restaurant op- i got three restaurants opening up on my street i can't tell you how many times people come to me and they're like are you worried it's like, no, I'm, I, I couldn't be more grateful for them. And you know why? Because when you drive down the street, there's a gas station on this side of the street, there's a gas station on the other side of the street. Good, because I'm on empty right now. Because <laughs> you're either going that way or you're yeah. going this way. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So you're um, and stop all, at and
0: like it's the Day Meyer, all ships rise with the tide. There's truth to that. You, they're making the community better. 100%. You're benefit from it. It's long term thinking. 100%. Um, what is one technology you've recently adopted in your restaurant that have a huge impact on communication? Uh, efficiency, profitability, anything along those lines. How are you evolving on that technological front?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll plug I'll plug a, a, a app that we use called Opsi, which I'm a part of that group. It's a a or sorry, OPSI, um, and it's a it's a recipe and informational app so all of our recipes are in it all of our mise en place lists are in it uh it's an inventory tracker it does all these things so james passifero was our chef to cuisine at spoon for a couple about three four years uh he created the app i met him five years ago when he had, he and his business partner matt were just creating the app i became his first investor in it became an advisor i think we had maybe six restaurants five years ago now we're in over 400 wow
0: that's awesome yeah it's opsy yeah all right i'll have to check that out at the other gonna be at the show this weekend
1: Uh, I don't think so, no, because it's it's all tech based. First time mentioned
0: on the show, so I'm always psyched when I see that. I love it. Thank you very much. Uh, And how how is this serving you? Like, what is the benefit of having this in your restaurant?
1: So a lot of it is about taking away paper. Right, every single cook has a phone. They're taking pictures with their with their phone Uh, rather than printing out. It's it's made our. We did a case study on it, and it made our kitchen at Spoon and Stable about forty percent more efficient and getting the recipes and the jobs done. That's exactly what it is. If you're sitting down at the end of the night, and you're writing out a mise en place list, and you're having to rewrite the recipes, and that's 45 minutes on your payroll, when it could all be in an app and done, so none of that's happening, it's a lot of time and a lot of money.
0: We've made it to the last question. All right. It's a doozy, so get ready for it. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure, with the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you could leave behind for the good of humanity and your legacy. What would those three pieces of wisdom be?
1: Dang. Uh stay curious. One. Um, be open to adventure, which I guess is curiosity, so that doesn't count. I mean stay so stay curious would be one. Um allow yourself to fail. Two. And relish in your success. Three. Chef, I've had a lot of fun talking yeah. to you today, man.
0: Thank you so much. Uh, we wrap up every chat by calling somebody out. That's how I found you. Okay. I mean, the, beyond that, like you've had such an incredible career too. So it was just a matter of time before I got back to you. you. Uh, but who do you respect and admire in the industry? Somebody that you found out there were guests in the show, you would absolutely be tuning
1: in. Oh man, there are so many people. Um, you know, Missy Robbins is somebody who I really admire and respect. <clears throat> I'd love to connect you with her. Uh, missy and i have um known each other for years she ended up she actually took over an andrew carmelini kitchen in new york city as well um i never really knew missy i i met her when i was lucky enough at age 24 i was at el biz and she was the chef at spiaggia in san diego and our publicist set us up to do a dinner together and we've been friends for 20 years
0: awesome missy look out i'm coming at you i'd love to get you on the show and I don't know if you're hiring right now, if you're looking to grow your team, but if we were inspired by today's conversation, uh, if we want to come work for you or maybe just continue the conversation, what's the best way to connect?
1: Yeah, best way. I mean, all through the channels at Gavin Kaysen at Spoon and Stable. com is the, sort of the main website that gets you to all the different restaurants and companies that we got working on. So thank you.
0: Where do we send the handwritten
1: letters to? Yeah, send him to Spoon. <laughs> okay,
0: awesome. <laughs> uh, Chef Gavin case, man, thank you so much. Appreciate this it. This is where I say there is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Appreciate you. Cheers. Appreciate you, man. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Chef Gavin Kaysen, coming out strong, man. Awesome episode. Thank you so much. Uh, and really, to, to me, the big takeaway in today's episode is this idea of just quality over quantity, uh, going to surround yourself with the best people, taking your time to be thoughtful, uh, and just to, to show people you care and that you want it, writing letters, showing up and, you know, not expecting anything to be handed to you. Awesome stuff. And, uh, again, just to reemphasize this idea of, of quantity over qual- quality, heat, Chef Gavin Kaysen only worked for two restaurants. One of those restaurants was a hotel restaurant, which doesn't fully operate entirely like a traditional restaurant. So going to work for the best and and pushing the envelope and asking questions and and, and forcing yourself to learn the big takeaways in today's episode. Awesome stuff. Thank you so much, Chef Gavin. Um, If you're enjoying this podcast and you want more episodes just like this one coming your way, On-site, in-person, slow, intimate, long-format interviews. It's not cheap. I'm traveling to these guests. I'm, I'm I'm going into their restaurants, and you know we're we're putting a lot of work and time and energy into this. We need your support. One way to support the show is by supporting our sponsors. Another way is by using our affiliate links. Uh, you can also share this podcast with everyone you know in the restaurant industry. Help me get the word out there. And then lastly, uh, we're bringing back the network. The idea behind the network is I'm out you know, in the field, overturning rocks, talking to restaurateurs, finding clues, and following up on those clues. But we're really going to be slowing down and pulling back the layers on these clues, i.e. the tools and services uh, and ideas that are referred to us organically on the show. And we're going to learn together. So if that sounds interesting to you, know, another big value from the network that I hear is that sometimes it's just good to have people who are going through what you're going through to listen. And you have your own answers, but sometimes you just need people to listen who, who understand to help you find the answers. And that all happens at Restaurant Unstoppable Network. Would love to have you over there. Come hang out. And I can't say goodbye without saying thank you to all the people who make this show possible. That's it for today. Until next time, peace out.